This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, joined, of course, by Jeffrey Liam Simpson and Terry South. We made it another day. Woohoo! Yeehaw! Happy relaxation day, by the way. Today's the day you get to slow down, breathe, and relax. <sighs> it's time to relax. I can't. Why? I can't. You just can't do it. Nothing's working. Nothing's working. All the buttons aren't. You push a button, nothing works. I'm afraid it's a little more complicated than that, Matt. Oh. <laughs> do explain. Please explain. It just doesn't life this is how life works, Jeff. You you I mean I, I, in my 48 years is that how old I am? Yeah. In my 48 years of Wrong. life <laughs> I've learned there just are certain days where you can push every button you want and it doesn't work. And then, you know, you get up four times a night to go to the restroom and it works. Something that is working though, just bad timing. Yeah, what is working? This uh, this diet that I'm on. You you look- I'm doing this this app. Yeah. So what you have is an app on your phone. I lost three and a half pounds in one week. Wow. And I didn't exercise once. Well, something's wrong. <laughs> something's wrong. You're going against nature now. Yeah, now you're just flat out going against nature. Well, you look great. You look slender. I don't know that I would wear the tight clothes that you're wearing. Too soon. It's too soon. I might okay. wait like three more weeks. All right. Then start putting on. And the then tight maybe stuff. after I've lifted some weights as well. Don't don't lift any weights if you want to lose weight. Because well, you're on an app where you pay thirty dollars, and you have a chance of maybe getting all that money back. <laughs> Is that how that works? If I if everybody gets it, then we all get our money back. If some people get it, then I'll get like ten extra bucks. So you can make an extra ten <laughs> on the on the lack of discipline of other people. Yes. Okay. So really, it's an app to take advantage of people that have no discipline. Uh, no. Okay. It's it's an app to take advantage of not losing your own money. Oh, okay. That's really why you do it. So That's you don't you do lose it. your money because you're also motivated by this money, and that makes you work out more. Not work out, but eat healthier. Well, that and my my uh, my sweet wife has said, look, you've got some heart disease in your family. You've got some diabetes and cancer say, in your family. You need to you need to make some changes. Did here. she say, look, Tubby? Did she say it like that? No, okay, no, because no. that would be rude. That would be so rude. No. Yeah. Mine doesn't say she's that just concerned. Not she's not saying you're humongous. She's just saying based on your family history, you need to See, make sure that you're healthy. That's why we get married is because we're here to help each other get better, right? And in your case, she until you're better insured, she wants you to live. You know, I can't tell you how horrible it was to be craving nachos. Had this really strong craving yesterday. Oh, did you? And I'm sitting down watching the the uh, ten to thirteen year old girls World Series softball because whoa, I'm whoa 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 what. Let you're, me explain. You were watching the 10 calm, to 13-year-old girls softball. Calm down. Softball. Let, let me explain. Okay, go ahead. 
I'm sitting at a sports clips okay. waiting to get a haircut. And at sports clips, they only show ESPN. Just sports, yeah. It's and all that's sports. what happened to be on. Okay. And I was enthralled, let's just say. Yeah, yeah. And they. Why do you go to a sports clips? Well, because he needs his hair sport- sportingly clipped. Yeah. So they're showing video of the concession stand lady dishing up nachos. Mm. I mean, what are the odds of that? Oh, that's The one craving hard. that I'm right. having. Yeah. And they film somebody making that thing that I really crave. Well, many would have been saying, hey, it seems like you're being inspired. Like this is to a prompting go to go get nachos. <laughs> and because you already had the prompting. And then all of a sudden the nacho ladies making nachos. Maybe you should have gone to get nachos. Others might say that that was a test, and I passed. That was the devil, and you did, and you've lost three and a half pounds. You look fantastic. I was just telling him. That was just the haircut, right? No, the haircut looks great and sporty. By the way, super sporty. I wondered that too when I stepped on the scale yesterday. Like maybe with that haircut, that'll push me over the edge. You did have a you did have a mullet. He had that big heavy mullet. It was always... really itchy. Was yeah, Kim Jong Un Beaufont thing going on. It was just. <laughs> I think like, that's Ugh. why you've been coughing so much. I think it is. So if the hair's gone, mm-hmm. you should be good. I need a haircut then too. A lot of Jeff Dander <laughs> in the room. Yeah, is that what it is? <laughs> Jeff Dander. Jeff Dander. Um, well, you look great, and and honestly, today because it's relaxation day, you, you shouldn't exercise today. Don't exercise. Just eat healthy and relax. I'm going to go to the movies and eat a small thing of popcorn. Ooh, I don't know, man. A little self-restraint, you hit your goal. Yeah, maybe just maybe no, maybe don't, don't celebrate yet. You don't understand. Don't celebrate yet. You just, go to this theater, you pay $5, the popcorn is included with the ticket. I know, but... So you're saying I should just throw it directly into the trash can? No, do what everyone else does and just throw it on the floor. Okay. I am going with my two daughters, so that you know probably will happen anyway. You are providing a job by doing that, by the way. Have, <laughs> have one of your kids get a sticky drink, like a... Coke or whatever, and then pour that on the floor. Also included throw. in the price okay, of the ticket. There you go. Drink, pour the drink and the the popcorn on the floor, and you've got a perfect movie experience. Then I'll be able to get some exercising done because I'll be trying to get my feet up off the ground. That's right. You'll do a little exercising my calves and my abs. Calves and abs. By the way, one of the greatest uh, basketball playoff games ever. Calves and abs. Also a great '80s musical duo. Oh yeah, calves ab- and abs. Yeah, ab. Yeah, abba. They were great. Uh, boy, we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, Kim Jong-un backing off a bit. Not, no longer going to bomb Guam. That's good. Thank heavens for Guam. Well, he wasn't going to bomb Guam. He's he going to bomb the ocean around Guam. Bomb Guam. Yeah. Yeah. Guam was actually going to be okay. Guam was always going to be fine. Yeah. So that's good news. Um, plus, Donald Trump finally came out. President Trump finally came out uh, against— Through. Gritted teeth, it looked. Yeah, as he read, I mean, the, as he read the teleprompter. Two two days later, he he came out with a really strong rebuke and anti-Nazi America. What's that, what are we calling him? Anti white nationalist, white nationalist. Racist. Yeah. Wow. He also hit on the media. Talked about the economy. Yeah, the media is still bad. Yeah. Is it too little, too late? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Mm. So it's been it's been a busy it's been a busy day. In fact, let's get to the headlines, Terry. Find out what else is going on around the country that we need to pay attention to. Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe has said one of the reasons the police failed to control the violence during the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville was because militia members at the rally were armed with better equipment than the state police themselves. It's easy oh. to criticize, but I can tell you this: eighty percent of the people here had semi-automatic weapons. 
it wasn't eighty percent, but there was quite a few people. Hold there. on, eighty percent of the people had. He, he just tossed that number out, yeah. but it's not exactly that. But several members of the militia group seen wearing tact- tactical gear and carrying assault rifles were marching. It looked like they just got out, just you know, walked out of Kandahar. Okay, they're good. all ready to go. Yeah, mm-hmm. all their Great. tactical gear ready to go. McAuliffe revealed on Monday that the far right activists had hidden caches of weapons around the city. Wow. So they were prepared for this thing to go bad. They thought this was going to get ugly, yeah. And they were going to take up, you know, defensive positions and start, I guess, taking out people? I'm not sure what they were going to do. Hold it, because wasn't there a big uh, issue a few years ago about how all of the states were getting the surplus military equipment, guns, cars, Oh, yeah, the state police rolled their armored car down the street, too, yeah. So, yeah, so everyone was complaining back then because this makes us look like a war state. Right. But now McCullough saying the people that showed we up we needed a war state to fight the people that showed up for war. Right. Okay. Just checking. And it says on the other side of town, counter protesters com- uh, comprised of faith leaders, groups of Black Lives Matter, and show up for racial justice supporters, and others gathered. Many of them were geared up also with shields and things to throw like water bottles. Yeah. And so I mean, this thing just escalates on both sides. What about the days that we used to just have a good poster? And we'd go, yeah. and a good chant, and the chant would threat, not you know, scare the other side, and we just chant them down. Right. Oh, I what thought you were talking days? about like the cat hang in there poster. No, no, that's no. a good one too. Though it's a great poster. Yesterday, protesters in Durham, North Carolina, toppled a Confederate monument. Uh, the monument in- engraved with the it says the Confederate States of America depicts a Confederate soldier. Activist had previously campaigned for its removal. Protesters tied a rope around the statue and pulled it until it fell from its pedestal and bent in half. And then they started kicking it, jumping on it. The police watched. They didn't do anything because yeah. know, there's all these people around, so they felt like it would be better to uh, well, not. Just, they're all armed. In, well, no, these weren't oh, armed. These, weren't the these armed were ones. more just protesters, okay. but they didn't want to incite anything. So it, the statue fell. The governor of North of uh, South Carolina, this is North Carolina, the governor of North Carolina criticized the action, tweeting that the racism and deadly violence in Charlottesville is unacceptable, but there's a better way to remove these monuments than just to have a mob show up and rip it down. Yeah. It looked just like the soldiers who were toppling the Saddam Hussein statue. Yeah, that's statue. what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. The, the, that's what we really ought to do is call in the soldiers that have toppled these they have experience. They now they're highly trained. There's probably a better, more civic oriented process to. Yeah, you remove call these in things. maintenance, and they'll just take it down. A 23 year old man arrested Friday after allegedly attempting to detonate what he believed was a 1,000 pound bomb oh. outside a bank in Oklahoma City. Really, the Washington Post reports an undercover FBI agent had posed as an accomplice to Jerry Drake Varnell of Oklahoma, uh, sorry, Oklahoma. In the months-long investigation leading up to the foil plot, Varnell had wanted to attack a Federal Reserve building in Washington D.C. The complaint says before deciding on the bank, First Bank in Oklahoma City. He uh, allegedly wanted to minimize deaths and injuries, planning the attack for Friday evening. So he had that in mind. Well, that was nice of him. Uh, Varnell identified the bank first as the target, prepared a statement to be posted on social media after the explosion, helped assemble the device, helped load it into what he believed was a stolen van, and drove the van himself to the bank in downtown Oklahoma City and dialed the phone number on a cell phone that he believed would trigger the explosion. Okay. All the while, the FBI had set this up so it was a fake bomb. It wasn't a stolen van. The whole thing was controlled, but this guy thought he was doing it. So everyone was in on it, but this guy. Yeah. So they set him up. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. What, what was what was it against the bank? What what was his problem with the bank? He wanted to do something to devastate and ha- like hamper the government. He wanted to really hurt the government. That's why he wanted to do the 
the bank in D.C., but he figured that'd be too yeah, much, well, so yeah. he went after this bank well, so instead. Was it, a, was it a federal bank? I don't know. It was just some like local. It was a bank. Wells Fargo. So that was his main purpose, you know. But the money would be nice too. Well, the they money's are, just a nice. They're side FDIC benefit. insured, right? So he's not there to rob the bank. No, he was just, to, he he is. In, he said he was inspired by Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. If you're going to break the law, Boy. aren't you going to break several laws while you're at it? But a thousand pound bomb levels the building. That's what's, what he wanted. What's it, sounds but, but, like, it seems like everybody's coming out of the woodwork now. The, the problem with this type of thing I see is the FBI has done this several times with people that yeah. uh, they report as ISIS sympathizers mm-hmm. or providing material support. And these people are need help. Yeah, the, exactly. They don't need the FBI to egg them on to the point where they do something, then they can arrest them and drag yeah. them out in front of the media and look what we did. We got this guy as a terrorist. You, like, you, can you can arrest just, somebody just on the – on the planning of a, an event like this, right? Okay. Sort of. You'd have to wait. For I mean, because they've arrested people that simply put a post on Facebook. Yeah. And it's like, okay. That was Jeff, so by the way. Do you remember? Where, what? Where's the freedom of speech there when you just post on Facebook and they arrest you? Yeah, that's You haven't weird. done anything, This right? is a guy that needs help. This guy needs help. And instead, they've gone him through this whole charade so they can parade him out and say, look, we stopped this horrible thing. And they might be doing it around the time they're sitting in front of the Senate looking for a budget. Oh. Well, that makes sense. Look, the FBI is, you know, needful. We need this now. I don't know. Okay. And uh, this story was funny. There was a uh, over the Canadian border, U.S. Customs and Border Protection caught uh, somebody smuggling three thirty-six thousand toy airplanes. Hold it. Really? They were counterfeit to make look make them look like actual toys that are on the shelves, but okay. they're all fake. And there's 36,000 of them. Bringing them into the United States? From Canada. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they said it would have been worth uh, $575,000. And I'm looking at these things, and they go, they usually, they'll like counterfeit like really popular toys. Yeah. And try to flood the market with uh-huh. the fake ones. Uh-huh. These aren't popular. They're just like a jet airplane. Was there a spinner effect? No, there was no fidget spinnery, none of that going on. Were they remote huh. controlled? No, I think they might have been maybe something you maybe you pull them back and then let them go and they roll forward. See, those are fun though. Those are tons of fun, hours of fun. So the guys get arrested and they, they were just trying to, the, the border protection are talking about, you know, copyright yeah. and these fraud, fraudulent things that are hurting companies in America. And yeah. so they're stopping them at the border. But, but I mean, why would someone go through this effort for toy airplanes? Well, and it seems like you could probably get a lot, it, it could get through the border a lot easier. I mean, there's a lot of things you can get through the border. Yeah. I would think through the Canadian border. I mean, it seems like we're having more problems through the Mexico border, That's what you bringing hear about. people in trucks across yeah. and then leaving them in parking we lots. We have talked about a maple wall. That's true. Yeah, when's that going up again? Uh, oh, I don't know, but doesn't a maple bar sound good? Stop it. Have you had a maple bar lately, Jeff? No. I did have some bacon this morning, though. Oh. You're on that kind of diet. You're on the diet that the, all you bacon can eat. Diet. Well, no. Just lower carbs. Mm. I haven't had a piece of. I did That's have some bread last night. That's why you can't have popcorn night. today. I'm, I'm going to. No, it's, it's a carb. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but there's corn in it, so. Yeah, there's Which corn is a and starch. corn. And there's a corn and corn chips too, nachos. <sighs> Plus, it has butter on it, which is okay. Butter is okay. Not not if your wife's worried about your heart. <laughs> Anyway, um, I, I don't want to discourage you because you look fantastic. And if you could put your shirt back on, that'd be great. Uh, did you guys – you know this eclipse thing's happening. 
Yes, it is. And I sent out a um, on my Instagram. I sent out a really important message. Okay. To everybody that follows me on Instagram, mm. um, the message was: Don't look at the eclipse. <laughs> Just don't look at it. It'll fry your eyeballs. In fact, I'm going to get some glasses. Should I bring them in? Yes. Should I bring a pair in so we could all go stare at the sun? Yes. Hold on. This is going to happen at 11 o'clock next week. Yes. So we'll be here. Yeah. Bring them in. Because right. I'm going to need to borrow those for about three minutes. <laughs> Where do you get your glasses? And My ha- mom has a pair for some reason. I, I don't know that those are the same glasses. No, they are. She just she got them from somebody. She she actually found the ones we used when I was eight. Okay. Oh, the oh, you kept your last eclipse. Well, glasses. she did, but then she she read somewhere where they're probably expired. Apparently, there's a time limit. You can actually use these where they're effective. Well, you know, you don't yeah. know until you try them. So, yeah. You heard our guest though the other day. He said you could take a piece of cardboard and poke a hole in it and look at the shadows. Yeah, shadows. Have like a if crescent you, shadow. If you want to look at the shadow of an eclipse, that'd yeah. be a great idea. Is or it, you could take your fingers and make like a little hole through your fingers and, and do the same thing. Hold it and then yeah. well, but then shoot, look, uh, at the look at the ground. ground. Yeah, yeah. Why can't we just watch a news watch the news coverage of it and get it in HD? It's a great point. With no glasses. Apparently, if you go to NASA.com, they just have cameras on it all day. I saw a post today trying to predict what the weather's going to be like. Because oh. wouldn't it be horrible? Oh. You travel, you do all this stuff, and it's cloudy. <laughs> you can't see that the sun. That would probably be my luck. Apparently, the western United States will be nice and clear. You know what we ought to do is have a really big carbohydrate festival. You're right. While we're looking at it We next can have week. a Carb Monday eclipse party. They bring nachos. Pizza. Maple bars. Right. You all right, Jeff? Show got noisy all of a sudden. Are you telling people with this song something, some subliminal message to turn around and look at the sun? <laughs> no. I'm. In, it's more of informing them that there is a total eclipse. Of the heart. Coming. Yes. Ah, good stuff. There's hey. a total eclipse of my heart right now because I can't all the foods that I love. Oh, but you look great again. Your ab is totally shaping up. That is one tip-top shaped ab you've got. We, uh, we've got a great guest coming up. We're going to be talking health care up next. Why is it so darn complicated? And, and did, you know, do the senators actually just make it more complicated? Anyway, J.B. Silvers, uh, former president and CEO, CEO of a health insurance company, is going to be talking to us uh, about uh, health care up next. There's nothing I can do, a total eclipse of the heart. Health insurance and how you feel it should be administered has quickly been added to the list of no-no's that you should not talk about at work. Have you noticed that? Why does something so simple seem so complicated? Well, here to speak with us today, maybe to help us sort through some of the complications of the healthcare discussion, is former president and CEO of a health insurance company and now a professor of healthcare finance at Case Western Reserve University, J.B. Silvers. J.B., thank you so much for being with us today. Great. Glad to be here. So what I find weird, and you brought it up in your article, is it's this idea that we're buying health care uh, services. Um, we're paying for them today, services that we may use in the future. We may not. Hopefully we don't need to. But in a way, it's almost so transactional. 
It's like buying a car, but I also am forced to buy a car with a bunch of features I don't want. Well, it's it's a terrible product to sell. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're you're taking money away from people up front, and then they have to fight to get it back when they actually need it. <clears throat> you do this kind of evaluation; it's just not good. That's that's one side. On the other is you're buying something you think you're just paying for the services in healthcare, but what you're really paying for is access to a whole bunch of things that you hope you'll never use. It's that, true. That's not a that, that's not a great product to sell. <laughs> and it is. I mean, yeah, you've and you've been in the healthcare industry. I mean, and I guess too that it's created a lot of enemies. The haves versus the have-nots kind of mentality. Um, is do you think when we we got into uh, Obamacare and kind of the the initiative? I mean, it, the H C H A C H A H C A. I mean, I guess the idea was to help. Everybody be able to be insured, but did when when the government gets involved, does it does it turn into a bigger mess? Well, politically, yeah. As you can just look at what we've been through here, uh, both seven years ago with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, and recently with the repeal and replace thing, it's very politically loaded. Um, you know, partly for a whole bunch of other purely political reasons, but also because insurance is really complicated. It's just not straightforward. But I think the key thing that I pointed out in this article is <clears throat> it's because we tend to think of buying a commodity, a service, right. a thing we can actually understand rather than buying access. Uh, and when you're just buying access to something you may or may not use, it's much more complicated. Do how how do we normally buy access to something? I mean, because again, if we, yeah, if, we, if we're putting down a payment, this is almost like a. I mean, these are big payments, car payments. Um, this this is a big payment. How would we normally, or how would you propose we would we should do it uh, to buy access versus actually um, buying a service? Well, the, the problem is is it's a, it's a classic finance problem. We when you don't know something. You've got a lot of uncertainty about what you're going to spend. Then you have some real difficulty. How do you put a price on something that you really don't know how much you're going to need? You you go to the doctor, and you don't know what's wrong. They give you a diagnosis, and then they make some recommendations, and some things happen. You don't know how much it's going to cost. You don't know where that's going to lead. You really are – you don't know what the product is. That's Mm. the whole problem. Um, so what I have to do is is have a precautionary way to approach this thing. And this is really, I think, in the broad scheme of finance, is really an important evolutionary thing in how humans have dealt with this problem of uncertainty. Um, it used to be that <clears throat> when the farmer plants the, plants the field, if there's a good crop, he lives fine. If there's a, a drought, he, he, he starves. Yeah. You know? Well, we found out how to do crop insurance. We sort of got an idea how to spread that risk across other people, and it allowed us to do some things that we just couldn't have done from a society point of view. So we sort of get it you know, mm-hmm. uh, with things like crop insurance or, or uh, casually, my house might catch on fire. But, some, but there, there's a real event. With healthcare, it's this unknown event. That's the, I, I don't know how much I'm going to use. I don't know when I'm going to need it. I don't know what kind of services are going to be. I don't even know where I'm going to go for this. I might be in some other part of the world when it happens. It's true. So it's really, really a tough one. Well, and I guess, too, you've got – and this is probably the one of the big reasons why 
you don't have everyone signing up for it, too, is it, I mean, it, healthcare means something completely different to a 20 year old than it does a 70 year old. And so all of a sudden, it, the, the risks are different, the needs are different, the expectations are different. Um, so is, is that part of the problem is we're not getting everyone equally into the pool anyway? Well, that's exactly what the problem is. The, the, the difficulty is you, you need to have everybody in uh, to even out the pool. Uh, we used to use something called community rating. You walked into your local Blue Cross plan. And they wrote you a policy. It was the same policy everybody else had, and it spread the risk equally. And it worked really pretty well. <clears throat> but two things happened. And the cost of care kept going up, partly because we were financing it. We were able to provide more and more services. And secondly, because we created competition so that commercial insurance companies could come in and take away the easy risk, the low-risk people, the young people people in low-risk industries, leaving the pool for the Blue Cross plans to have only the sick people. Well, that's that's like selling fire insurance to arsonists. You know? <laughs> You're right. not going to be in business very long if you do that. You have to have everybody in the pool to make it work. And that's why the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, put in a mandate. <clears throat> said you really have to buy insurance. And that's very unpopular. Americans don't like to be told what to do. Right. <laughs> But but I guess but they do want to be able to show up at a hospital when they are sick, even if they haven't paid, and be able to get care, get care. Well, and, and the first the first attempt at dealing with that particular problem was that every hospital has to accept whoever shows up at the door and stabilize them. Right, the words they use. So you know you can go to the ER, and they're going to take care of you, uh, and and the hospital then just has to eat that cost. Well, they don't eat the cost. They charge other people more. So commercial insurance companies pay about – your employer pays about 30 percent more for care to help crops subsidize those people that otherwise wouldn't be insured. Hmm. And that's one reason why business by and large accepted and supported the Affordable Care Act because they sort of knew that. Yeah. Uh, Small business didn't didn't get on board, but small – big business did. So the more you cover, the better off the rest of the people are that are out there buying insurance. Um, the trouble is we just screwed up the implementation pretty badly on this. Is that what happened? Yeah. Is it's just we didn't? I mean, it's it's a great idea. We just didn't we just didn't implement it right. Well, there are a couple of things. One, you mentioned the pricing. Um, the law said that the highest price policy can only be three times the lowest price policy and. In premiums, mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, it really ought to be about five to one to be actuarially fair. Um, young people use about twenty percent of the cost of old people, it, and so that has to be reflected in the premiums. They they uh, they basically jimmied it so that young people wound up paying more and, young, and old people less. No. <laughs> Needless <laughs> to say, that leads to a little bit of an actuarial problem. So yeah, but company, JB, the old people are the ones that are voting. Yeah, they vote. Yeah, but that's not really the reason they I, wanted to try to. Well, maybe it is the reason. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but but because of that, they had more trouble signing young people up. Right. Just just from a price point of view. But secondly, uh, young people are, are immortal. Don't we know that? Right. Exactly. You know, they're never going to need health care. So if you think you can predict your own health status better than somebody else, then you you hedge against that. You you, you avoid that care. Um, 
And, and so on the one hand, you have people who think they are not going to use health care that don't want to be in it. On the other hand, you have people that know they're going to need health care that definitely do want to get into it. And so we have this bias built in. Um, the Affordable Care Act had a bunch of things in it to try to deal with that. And they did a reasonably good job with that, trying to do risk adjustments with the fancy word for that. But then Congress came along and said, well, we're not going to do that because that's a bailout of the insurance company. Mm. <laughs> so they, 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 the, the, the first few years, the insurance companies were supposed to be getting a substantial amount of money for this risk stabilization, yeah. risk stabilization fund. Well, Congress uh, basically reneged on their deal and paid them 12 cents on the dollar. Uh, and the insurance companies then said, hold it. That, that wasn't the deal we signed on for. You mean I'm going to have to bear that extra risk? Well, fine. Then 20% premium increase to bear to cost that. And we're going through that right now this year because there's a thing called these uh, cost-sharing subsidies, cost-sharing reductions. Yeah. That for really poor people that have no money, they can't afford the high co-pays and deductibles, the amount of cost-sharing that's built into those. So – the feds are supposed to subsidize the insurance company for that amount for really low income people. That's what Trump is holding hostage in the Senate where the House Republicans have filed suit about. And because of the threat of that going away, the insurance companies are still on the hook for it. Hmm. But without the subsidy, they're stuck. So they got to build that into rates for next year. So rates are going to go up another 20 percent next year as a result of that. And Those so are all both up. Let me make sure, let me make sure I got this right, JB. So supposedly, so the government and the insurance companies uh, were supposedly going to work together to create a health care program, um, and the health insurance companies were going to be subsidized to make sure that they they took the disproportionate amount of risk um, and and manage the risk imbalance. Um, and now, over time, the the risk has become too great for insurance companies. So either, I guess, they're pulling out of the whole market altogether, or some are just raising premiums. Yeah. Yeah. In anticipation of not getting paid. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Because I, I, a lot of people I heard, JB, are saying this is a boon for insurance companies. Insurance no. companies love this because they're making so much money on it. But you cl- clarify that for us. No, they're not. The average insurance company makes about uh, a three to five percent margin, very low. What people get confused about is there's a thing called the medical loss ratio. It's a terrible terminology, but what it means is how much of the dollar, every dollar of premium they collect, they actually pay out for medical expenses. Yeah. And and by the, the ACA, the, that in this market, this individual market. That used to be completely out of whack. You had many, many individual insurance policies that paid out 50 cents on the dollar, you know, 60 cents on the dollar. Well, the ACA said, no, you can't do that. If you sell to these people, you got to spend at least 80 percent of that on on medical costs. Hmm. And if you don't, if you if you get if you spend less than that, you got to give it back as a rebate. Got to give it back to people. It was a really important part of the bill that nobody talks about. But because uh, the first few years, because of all this stuff, that medical loss ratio was the other direction. Oh, they yeah. They were actually losing money on these policies. Finally, this year, they've got their rates 
roughly in line, and they're actually beginning to make a little bit of money on these things, independent of all this nonsense going on that we're playing with right now. So this year, the market probably, by most people's standards, would have stabilized. Hmm. And we would have had a pretty good uh, equilibrium here after a lot of chaos of the first three years. But now Congress is playing games, and President Trump is playing games with the uh, cost-sharing reductions. And so we're off off on the battle again of trying to figure out, well, how much risk am I actually bearing here? Mm. You know, how big does a premium have to be? And, yeah. And they don't – they have until September 5th to finalize that number. So get ready because we're going to see – we are seeing now huge increases across the country and probably some more people dropping out of the market. Boy, oh, boy. Well, and then again, yeah, and then then we do it all again with supposedly some other bill. J.B., let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. J.B. Silvers. He is a, a professor of healthcare finance and banking at Weatherhead School of Management um, with a joint appointment in the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And he's walking us through this complicated issue of health care. Why is it so complicated? What are some of the business uh, points behind it? Who's really suffering? Why are premiums going up? Helping us understand it, making sense of the complicated. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I walk through the streets. You work here. Don't you want good insurance? Don't need it. Never been sick. Perfect immune system. Okay, well, if you've never been sick, then you don't have any antibodies. I don't need them. Superior genes. I'm a shrewd. And superior brain power. Through concentration, I can raise and lower my cholesterol at will. Why would you want to raise your cholesterol? So I can lower it. <laughs> Dwight Schrute from The Office. Uh, that's a great episode where Dwight Schrute was put in charge of um, sorting through all the health care needs of everybody in the office. But, of course, if you can... If you can raise and lower your uh, your um, what's it called cholesterol levels, then all of a sudden you've got different needs in the healthcare world than maybe those around you. Uh, anyway, today we're talking healthcare and the Affordable Care Act and the complications of it. Why is it so complicated? What really uh, is creating the complication? Joining us is Dr. J. B. Silvers and. Um, JB is a is a is the John R Mannix Medical Mutual of Ohio Professor of Healthcare Finance and Professor of Banking and Finance at the Weatherhead School of Management with a joint appointment in the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. JB again, thank you for being with us. Great. Good to be here. Now, here's. Did you like that Dwight Schrute moment? Oh, no, if, we, if we could all be Dwight, wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> wouldn't that be great to just have that confidence, especially in the in the Affordable Care Act? Um, why? Here's a crazy thing. Why do we get our insurance through our companies anyway? Like it well, seems like. Question. Don't you think like that's a weird? I mean, it seems like maybe we should get it through the government or we should just be doing it on our own. So it's our own decision. It's not tied to our income. It's not tied to all these other benefits. Well, almost everybody else in the world does it that way. Ours is um, an artifact of the wage price controls during World War II. Oh, <laughs> really? Believe it or not. Yeah, we had we started off with, um, uh, in fact, John R. Mannix, the guy that you yeah. named after, used to run Blue Cross in Cleveland. And he told me that um, 
when he got there, he had he he had people coming to him, people that are running companies, and say, you know, I need machinists to be able to fill these World War contract, uh, contracts, and I can't get any. Could you design the biggest, fanciest healthcare package that you can come up with so I can use that to attract machinists because I can't pay them anymore? Hmm. They wage price controls. So basically, the World War II is what set this thing off. And then the unions figured out, hey, this is pretty good bargaining. So they started bargaining for it and uh, got really fat packages. So once it became instituted, then uh, and then along the way, the the IRS, the tax people said, oh, yeah, and you can use that as a tax-deductible expense, hmm. Mr. Employer. But, Mr. Employee, you don't have to report that as income. So that's tax-free. So there's enormous. Oh, wow. Because th- th- this gets into it, doesn't it? Because the IRS, aren't they the ones that are... Middle-class welfare, no, no question about it. No, it really, yeah. It's right up there with a home deduction, you know, in terms of, in terms of loss of tax revenue. And, and so it, it just makes economic sense to buy from everybody's point of view. I want to compensate my employees, give them tax-free income. Terrific. I want to get health care coverage, give me a benefit that I don't have to pay for. That's wonderful. So you can understand why it took off. Mm. Um, yeah, and, but, yeah, and it wasn't bad in some ways because this is a natural group. So everybody that's employed, old, young, sick, well, whatever, they all get it. So you've got a natural group, and you've leveled out all these ups and downs here just the way an insurance pool. So most people in the country are getting coverage through their employer, but it's not insurance. The insurance is what's called self-insured. They pay the bottom line uh, fee each year, cost, directly. Uh, and Aetna or anybody else who writes these things, you have that card in your wallet. It looks like you're insured, but you're not. They're just doing the claims processing. Interesting. So we have a yeah. really strange system here. Well, and it seems to be confusing, right? Because I, I'm even – I'm paying it out of my, uh, my check, but it feels Absolutely. like my company's doing it. So it's almost it, well, it almost doesn't feel as um, it doesn't feel as 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 difficult as you know having to write a check a, another check to the government or someone. Well, until the last few years, you didn't even know how much they were paying. Finally, they had to start disclosing it on your paycheck. So you look at the little stub at the bottom; it says how much the company is paying in extra benefits, huh. how much you're paying, and then how much they're paying. You didn't get that other part before, so you <laughs> didn't even know what the subsidy was. Until Unbelievable. The well, and it also seems like it's complicated as well because it, when you hear about the the um, the Congress and and legislators, they're up there moving Medicare money, Medicaid money. They're moving all of these other subsidies around, getting and 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 using some of that money to pay for ACA. Is have we stirred it up so con- in such a complicated way now that that it does need to be repealed just to start again? And or or is this something that can actually be fixed? Oh, I, number one, this the, the part we've been talking about so far about the individual market is a really small part of the whole pie. <clears throat> so this is the part of the health insurance business that was clearly broken. Uh, but it's only about you know, probably less than 5% of the people are engaged in this individual market. Most of the coverage comes from government, Medicare and Medicaid. Second biggest comes from it, from employers. And then this last little tiny piece is what we buy as individuals, uh, individual entrepreneurs or whoever it might be. It's a really small part of the pie. 
but it was completely broken. It just didn't work well at all. So this was basically an attempt to the mm. ACA to take people that had lousy coverage and give them something that looks like, and they, they ate this, they modeled it after what a major company would give it, be giving their employees. But then they added on top of it and said, but it has to be affordable. So affordable doesn't mean the premium. It means the net out of pocket. So they defined affordable as a percentage of your income. It's right there in the legislation. Hmm. Um, if you're just above the poverty level, affordable is 2% of your income. That's all you're going to pay out of pocket. If you're higher income, uh, uh, it can go up to 9.5% of your income. Now, that, that, that was a, a, a definition built right in the law of what affordable meant. And what it meant then was that the difference between what the company had to have to be actuarially sound and what was affordable was the subsidy. We backed into what the subsidies were to make it affordable. So the irony of what's going on now is that with Congress and the, and the president playing games with this, driving up insurance rates the way they are for these individuals, the people that don't have the subsidies are going to get priced out of the market, particularly since they don't, uh, they're not enforcing the mandate. Mm -hmm. And the people that are getting subsidies are going to do it just, just fine, thank you, because affordable hasn't changed for them. Their, their income hasn't gone up. So the difference is going to be eaten up in larger subsidies. So the government is sitting there shooting themselves in the foot, and it, and creating it, it, chaos and yeah. driving prices and driving premiums up. And then they're going to make those premiums good in terms of more subsidies. It's just crazy. That's it. Then they it's just a, put their finger on the scale, right, and then throw $8 billion more at it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, more than eight. I mean, mm. by the time you add this up, it's going to be many more billions. Oh. So, so uh, again, it's a complicated issue because then it, it's funny, too, because people don't trust the institutions anymore, it doesn't seem like. We don't trust the government. We don't trust the IRS to check to see if we're all on board we don't trust the insurance companies, for heaven's sakes. They're the ones that are milking all of this. We don't trust even the hospitals anymore. I mean, so how do you solve a problem with so many hands in the cookie jar? <laughs> well, uh, if you're if you're uh, a Republican, a right wing, more of a right wing Republican, you believe the free market can do it. Free market can do it. Everybody having skin in the game. Uh, everybody paying a portion of what they have to pay. I mean, those are all sort of key market-based principles right. that in general work pretty well. The trouble is in this marketplace, there's a lot of, lot of problems. Part of it is the trust issue. Part of it is the fact that there's so many side payments going on and special arrangements. Part of it is consolidation. We basically have uh, relatively few providers in each, in each area now. So there's, the competitive model is, is far less possible to, to actually bring off. Right. We have normal monopolies. So there are a whole bunch of problems with this. But the irony is that most of the Republican counterproposals still depend on private companies, insurance companies, to compete with each other very much like the Affordable Care Act expects them to compete with each other. Yeah. <laughs> and they and they both have this fundamental flaw that <clears throat> it's hard to make competition work in healthcare. Yeah. We've got about one minute, JB. Let me just ask you, I've had uh, other people on the show before that maybe what could help the 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 market would be to create uh, – to keep everything as it is, let the competition continue between the markets, maybe bolster them or whatever, but then add a single-payer system as well. So the government's also well, paying 
and, and basically offers their own version that uh, there would be lower incomes, all of the subsidized monies would go through that pro- that program and and simplify the market. It's not a bad idea. Uh, part of the reason to do that, and, and there are many proposals out there to do that, Medicare for all or something of that sort. Yeah. But they, uh, there's actually a bill in now to let Medicare go down to age 55 and let people buy into it. Uh, presumably, if they're lower income, they would then have a government subsidy to help them pay for that. Right. You can't have the same premiums. So it's a it's a feasible thing. Could be done. Uh, you could let them buy in the Medicaid, too. So some people are, have advocated that. Uh, but again, we're only talking about this small yeah. slice of individuals here. It's not the rest. So people listen to this program that have, uh, have employer-sponsored insurance or, or Medicare, they shouldn't worry because this – nobody's messing around with those things. Those are all pretty solid. And by the way, the premiums are coming in at really reasonable rates this year. Hmm. They're not going up at 20 or 30%. The underlying healthcare cost is, is in the area of four or 5% increase a year. It's reasonable. Yeah. And, and premiums are reflecting that. So it's just this one slice that's all screwed up and it's screwed up partly because it's just a real tough market. And partly because, the, the health policy people haven't been able to get their act together in Congress. Of course. Of course. <laughs> well, J.B., we appreciate you, man. Thank you for your great work. Uh, again, J.B. Silvers is uh, president, uh, former president and CEO of a health insurance company and also professor of health care finance at Case Western Reserve University. Uh, we, honor, we, uh, we appreciate his work. It's, it's a complicated issue, and uh, we wanted to just bring you some more answers. What's going on? Is it... Uh, is it as chaotic as we all think it is, or, you know, is is that what's going on in our with our legislators? Do they just complicate it, trying to, you know, smoke and mirrors us? Who knows? Anyway, this is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back, friends. You know, you think it's confusing uh, to understand our healthcare world. Try being a stray dog in India near the Kasadi River. No, St- thanks. Stray dogs are turning blue after drinking and washing in water from an Indian river used to dump industrial waste. The uh, handfuls of do- blue dogs are turning heads on the streets of Mumbai, local animal protection officers report. Their change has apparently been linked to pollution in a local river where the animals swim and look for food. Industrial waste is being pumped into the Kasadi River in Navi, Mumbai, next to the Maharashtra state, western, uh, state capital in western India. So the dogs go in there. They go in white. They go in whatever color, and they come out blue. I mean, you got to be thinking, what's going on? If, if you're just some senior citizen in the middle of Mumbai and a blue dog walks by, what are you thinking? It's well, over. Something's happening. It's all over. That darned eclipse is done turning <laughs> these dogs blue. That's exactly how they would sound in India <laughs> as well. That's exactly. That's uh, translated to English. Um, anyway, lucky. Uh, just consider yourself lucky. You could be, you know, swimming in a river, coming out blue. Not pretty. Uh, trying to find you some some good in the world, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on this side, joined by Jeffrey Simpson and Terry South. The gang's all here. Ready to uh, bring you the latest, the greatest, the uh, the latest headlines, of course, plus empty news, news you didn't even know you needed to know. We'll get to all of that fun today. Plus, today we're also going to be talking with uh, a true blue expert from the Harvard Law School about how we investigate our own politicians. Are we doing a very good job of that, and do we have a good system for it? I would say maybe not. Spoiler. He Wrong. Says, no. Yeah. But he does give examples of other countries that are going through this process that may have a better idea. And you may have heard how many other countries are prosecuting their politicians. I mean, there's a lot of politicians like in um, in what's it called now? South Korea. Rio de Janeiro. De Janeiro, Brazil. They've got a ton of uh, prosecution. Yeah, they had it was something like half of their parliament was under investigation at one point or another. So (laughs) So is it just Just that they choose bad candidates or are they just really honest in their prosecutions? Hmm. It's just a routine. It's a routine checkup. Just a routine check. So we'll get to that because, uh, you know, they're still in the Russian investigation and we'll get some insight into how how he thinks that's going. Is it fair? I mean, once it becomes a political process and the person in power can fire everybody. Then, you know, it becomes a little, I guess, jaded in, in, in if it's a verifiable truth or not. We'll get to that. All that fun straight ahead. Plus, um, more and more news about coming out about, thank heavens, the, uh, the, 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 the eclipse. Everybody is telling you now, don't look at it. Haven't they been Everybody, telling us that all along? Well, no, this is different. Now they have oh, okay. now they have like true blue medical doctors talking about don't look at it. So now they're saying really don't look at it. And now now the shows are all like giving examples of people that have looked at it and how bad it was for them. So the rule is don't look at it. I think uh, that's uh, how they came up with the character for Cyclops in the X Men franchise. Mm. Really, it's a good the guy point. with the laser vision. It's just it came from an eclipse. Somebody looked at yeah, the and then when he took those goggles off, yeah. whenever he takes them off, he just starts shooting lasers. Yeah, he has no control. So you have to keep those sunglasses on. Why? Why would you go right there this early in the morning? Why would you go to Cyclops and some superhero show? It's just science. I'm just telling you the facts. I I'm having a hard time on that one. Don't worry. I have secured a couple pairs of glasses. I will try to have one here on Monday so we can all stare at the sun. Oh, is it Monday? I thought you were going to scalp them for like $150 or so. I should because they're uh, they're legit. Are they? Yeah. They have a seal of approval on them. Who's, whose seal is it? Eh. Details. Dr. The, Xavier's. Yeah. Tr- Trump, Professor X. The Trump, the Trump uh, NASA no, it's good seal of approval. It's good housekeeping. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, then that's good. Yeah, it's good. At least we know they're legit. Totally legit. All right. Well, we'll get to all of that fun. Um, Is it bad that I'm not interested in looking at the sun? Wait, you have glasses and you're not interested? Uh, it, just, it just doesn't. I mean, I'm okay. Great. Well, I, I was starting to have a complex because everybody else is excited about this, the eclipse. And I mean, I'm going to look at it like on TV. 
Yeah, I mean, but I didn't know. I felt like, am I out of? Am I just not cool? Am I not in the in crowd? Well, there's because some of that. I'm not into this. I mean, there's some of that. Definitely, some of that going on. Yeah. Do I just not care enough about Mother Earth? Me. Eh. I don't know. It doesn't. This doesn't interest me that much. Remember what Mr. T said about Mother. No. There is no other like Mother. So treat her right. Treat her right. And then, like, I pity the fool or something like that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was really astounding quotes that he was. You able just to share quoted with us. Mr. T about his mother. Mm-hmm. And that he was like no other. So treat her right. So treat her right. I think I'm going to cry. Okay, let's go to the headlines then, see if that gets me out of it. Terry, what's uh, going on around the rest of the I country? really don't think so. President Trump's top advisors wanted him to just talk about infrastructure during his impromptu press conference Tuesday in New York City. He was at his hotel, if you didn't know this. Oh, he is. So the acoustics at the uh, press conference were ridiculous, as it was just constantly echoing. And he's just standing in the lobby out in front of his it's elevators. Just- that's great. What a great conference. Instead, he blamed the violence on Saturday's white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, on both sides and defended the tiki torch-wielding white nationalists who descended upon the University of Virginia campus chanting, White Lives Matter, and you will not replace us by saying they were protesting very quietly. Senior White House officials told CNN and NBC News that Trump wasn't supposed to answer any questions, but it wasn't surprising that he veered off track ever since Saturday when he was criticized for not strongly condemning white supremacy. He's been complaining to his advisors about unfair media coverage, one official told CNN. Another official described Trump to NBC News as going rogue. One of the most solemn faces in the uh, press conference belonged to Trump's new chief of staff, John Kelly, who was photographed standing off to the side of the podium with his arms crossed, looking down at the floor. Uh. In response to Trump's combative stance Tuesday, one notable figure expressed his approval. White nationalist and former Ku uh, Klux Klan Grand Wizard David Duke, who thanked Trump for his honesty and courage in declining to pin the entirety of the blame on the white supremacists. What's a KKK Grand Wizard? Their leader. Oh. One of their leaders. Their supreme grand li- leader wizard. They must have that laser vision, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe. Authorities in Baltimore removed Confederate statues throughout the city early Wednesday morning, only a few days after a similar removal of monuments in Virginia sparked the days of protests. Just after midnight a Wednesday, a group of police officers and a crane made their way through public squares and city parks, tearing down monuments and carrying them out of town. A small crowd did that did appear were celebratory. The editor-at-large from a Baltimore City newspaper reports the police are being cheerful and encouraging people to take photos and selfies with the, the uh, statues as they're removed. Unbelievable. In other news, bystanders and first responders came to the rescue of a mother and her three young children after they were injured by a fallen tree in Central Park Tuesday morning. A large elm tree uprooted, uprooted and fell on a woman, 39, as she was pushing two children, ages four and two, in a stroller mm. while carrying an infant in her arms. Nearly, this was about, in, it was in Central Park West. The, mo- the mom, uh, the, the woman was trying to shield the kids when the tree knocked her in the head, according to the fire department. She was pinned on the ground for about 10 minutes before firefighters freed her. The woman and three children taken to the hospital. Treated for their injuries, the woman suffered head trauma and is listed in critical condition, while the children were listed in serious condition due to their ages. All of the injuries described as non-life-threatening. So the tree just fell over. Wow. wow. You're just walking down the street, and the next thing you know, you got a tree on you. Huge tree, by the way. Unbelievable. And finally, a Wisconsin man is lucky to be alive after a nail pierced his heart during a construction accident. Ooh. While building a frame for a fireplace seven weeks ago, Doug Bergenson was holding a nail gun and accidentally fired a three-and-a-half-inch nail into his chest. 
chest. Holy cow. It didn't really hurt. It just kind of felt like it stung me. It said. stings a bit. But his work for the day was definitely over. When I saw the nail moving with my heart, I kind of like, oh, I'm not going to get anything done today, so I better <laughs> do something that about this. Crazy. Well, that's the end of this outfit. <laughs> through the Yeah, through the small metal, though the small metal spike was sticking out of his chest, he didn't bother to call 911. He drove himself 12 miles to the uh, to Typical the man. Yeah, right. He seemed like, he goes, it seemed like the thing to do. He goes, I felt fine other than having a little too much iron in my diet. <laughs> uh, hospital staff rushed uh, him to yet another hospital. He underwent open heart surgery. He did not have any permanent damage to his heart, just a scar and an appreciation for the power of nail guns. Yeah. He's got oh, a reverence and boy. a respect. Hey, hand me that hammer. I'm just going to drive to the hospital. Got to get this out. That is unbelievable. Have you seen those? Of course, you've seen those ambulance bills. Oh yeah, I used to charge those. Yeah, but how could you, sir? Well, to save that man's life. We just drove to the hospital. He's fine. I know, but eventually they had to transport him. They said the doctors afterwards said at any moment it could have slipped one way or the other. And he would have been dead. Wow. It was just hanging there in his heart. Just sort of, you know. That is incredible. And it was, I don't, it wasn't in his heart. It was to the side of his heart. But the heart was moving and it was just kind of moving. Every the... time the heart beats, you see your nail wiggle. That is, I mean. He hits a wrong bump, you know, he gets in an accident. That's why you kind. need to be grateful for people that do work like that. Because what's the worst thing that could happen to us? Because of how we work and where we work. Paper cuts? Paper cuts? Yeah. yeah. Jeff could probably get electrocuted. Yeah. Right. We're safe over here. Yeah. Well, possibly. I mean, there's actually a really good chance that Jeff will get electrocuted before mm. the show's over. Yeah. Or at least before <laughs> the week is over. Yeah. Give him a week. Man, that is incredible. Well, congrats to that guy. He dodged a bullet. Or a nail. Mm, or a nail. A nail. Yeah. yeah. He does a nail. Who didn't dodge the nail was Donald Trump. He just doubled down and stepped right into it. Wrong. What is his compelling need to balance out the argument with the white supremacists? Why must – Is mean, it is it his drive that he's, he doesn't want to be told what to do, which is what he did on Monday when he came out with his yeah. statement? That's His initial response on Saturday was what he wanted to say. Right. Many people at fault, I kind of think. Yeah. Then Monday, Monday he came out and said exactly what everybody wanted him to say, which is what he never does. And then Tuesday he again told you what he truly believes. Doubles down. And is that more of a reaction to the media where he's watching them come at him and attack him and other Republicans coming at him and he's frustrated by all these people telling him he's wrong? And so he – not necessarily yeah. he truly believes everyone's right or wrong here, but that he's just more mad at the media and this is how he's expressing it. He probably that. is, but – I mean, it really is. You can't support. You can't support a racist movement. No, you can't support it, even if, even if they were one percent uh, innocent, or, or even if they're the other group was one percent guilty, or twenty percent guilty, or eighty percent guilty. Yeah. You can't show any. No, you can have this argument if the other side wasn't carrying the Nazi flag. Right. Yeah. That's really what this comes down to because other protests, and you see this. And everything else they were carrying. Right. You know what this is? There are people that have been put on this earth and bless them. They just want to please as many people as possible. Yes. 
They're pleasers. Don't you think that's Trump? He doesn't I, want to doesn't want to disappoint anybody. Doesn't want to offend I don't think or upset that, anyone. That would I. Uh, so CNN's headline is Trump's moral failure. Hmm. But I don't. I really think this is a lot less. I think for a lot of us, it's a moral issue. Like you can't do this. I think for Trump, it's just it's about numbers. Quite. Honest. I just think he's an opportunist. So whatever is the best opportunity, he can't lose that percentage. A vote. He can't lose that because he's already down to only a third of the country liking him, really. You're wrong. Right. <laughs> You're wrong. So if he gets rid of, you know, the extreme alt-right, then – and then the the alt-right were very disappointed in his in his uh, his words a few days ago. On Tuesday. Now they're – pro- yeah. and now Yesterday they're more – Yesterday they're like, all right. Hey, now you're back, pal. There's a book out called The Devil's Bargain. It's a, it's a book about Steve Bannon. Oh, the and devil. This reporter from, uh, was it Business Week or Bloomberg? And Bloomberg goes and talks to him and does this extensive interview, which is the entire book. And one, at one point he asks him, why didn't Trump, during the campaign, step away and make it a, really apparent, I do not want the support of white supremacists? And they said they went and looked at the, the uh, electoral data and it didn't show a positive gain for him to yeah. do that. So what's he doing? Because the people that would have voted for him either didn't care or they they were racist. So they're like, well, yeah. if that's our supporters, then why do we need to make a public statement? Mm. Because the people who were really concerned about racism weren't going to vote we're for him. We're going to vote for him anyway. So they made this decision that this is what we're going to do. Well, I know, but then why does every other president – Blow them out of the water. Like even other Republican presidents will blow out that racist idea. Hmm. But they – is it just because I guess it's more moral? Yeah. It's They're a just, moral It's decision. a moral decision instead of just, an, you know, what's my I, voting How can I win? Yeah. That's crazy. Boy, what is going on? This morning on Fox and Friends – Oh, yeah. there, there was Isn't a that segment. an animated television? Yeah, it's a great at, Fox show and Friends. Yeah. At times. Um, there was a segment. They had the, the one of the hosts and then a Republican and a Democrat strategist, they called them. But they're two African-American uh, guests, and they were talking about the statues. Should yeah. the statues really come down? And the uh, the Democrat decided, well, she just started talking about this moral choice that the president made. Hmm. And then... They go to the Republican, and he started talking about the moral choice. They both ignored the topic, which was the statues, right? And went to this moral choice. It ends in tears. Huh. People are very—they're talking about their families and how just emotionally, yeah. as an African American, see the president of the United States siding oh, can you with white supremacists, especially after having an African American president. Like to me, that seemed like we, there was all this movement, all this yeah. forward progress in race relations, and now it seems like we're just skidding backwards. And then you see what Marco Rubio comes out. Orrin Hatch had some comments yesterday, and all these Republicans start coming out. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, what's happening? And so now there's a question: Does he have anyone in the Senate that he could lean on for his tax p- policies he wants to put through? Is there people in the House that are willing to step into this? mess that's yeah, been made mold, yeah. to be able to, to get policy moving forward. It's a, I guess it's a good thing they're all home for August. Yeah. yeah. Give it a few weeks to settle <laughs> down. But wow. Well, and so what's going to happen in the fall when everyone starts getting, you know, stir crazy? Yeah. Uh, and you're, there's going to be chaos. 
I'll predict some chaos. Oh, nice. All, well, all you need is one, one police shooting on an mm-hmm. African American, or vice versa, right. or it's like the what we've been seeing with uh, cops, somebody sneaking up on a cop and assassinating a cop. Right. And these protests aren't going to stop. Mm-hmm. There's been plans now we're in Florida. And just Texas is going to have some more. Uh, they want to go back to Charlottesville because there's groups saying they're not done there. And yeah. So these these protests by white supremacists are going to continue because they feel emboldened now because they were only half at fault. And then did you notice it, then that now they're bringing up another issue. So do you go to – so if we ended up needing to bomb uh, North Korea, if we ended up mm. needing to take on North Korea, do you go fight for a president that you don't trust their values? Right. It's the it's a weird discussion that's starting to happen where this there it's you have to have the moral authority as well. It's not enough to be elected; you have to have moral authority. But don't you think they would they would just be fighting not for the president but for their country? Well, depends. The president some would some say went overboard in his comments um, for Kim Jong Un, and then others back him down. And this then, was locker room talk. <laughs> Certainly, I'm not proud of it. It's you have to have the moral authority. Right. It's not enough to just have won an election. People have to trust your your ideas. <laughs> we are in a different world, aren't we? Okay. Mm. Well, let's uh, let's take let's take a break. Uh, up next, we're going to be talking with um, a professor from um, Harvard about our ability to investigate politicians. Have we set up a method that that if, that is effective? That is apolitical that actually can independently investigate our own leaders. Well, we'll be talking about it up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. The investigation into the Trump campaign and the Russia allegations have followed President Trump's whole presidency the last eight months. He fired the FBI director, Comey. He criticized the special prosecutor, uh, Mueller, and then calls the media fake news. He also even threatens to fire uh, the special prosecutor as well. So why does it seem so hard for the U.S. government to investigate our top politicians, whether it's President Trump or President Clinton or really any of our leaders? Uh, do we have a good system created to investigate our own politicians? Well, uh, according to our next guest, probably not. Uh, Mark uh, Tushnet is a professor of law at Harvard, and his research includes uh, examining the practice of judicial review in the United States and around the world. And uh, he's going to give us some of his insight. Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, glad to be here. Boy, are we... I mean, it seems like it's 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 not a good alignment when we have our politicians uh, creating the systems to I, to basically investigate themselves. That's right. Uh, many places around the world have set up uh, essentially independent investigations, investigating bodies that uh, are more or less permanent, uh, and uh, they do that in their constitutions so that politicians, uh, elected politicians, don't have uh, sort of day-to-day or year-to-year control over the investigating process. Why why are other 
countries leading in this? Um, I mean, is it just our Constitution's been in place too long? What is it that makes other countries more on top of this than us in the United States? Uh, Partly, it is just the age of the U.S. Constitution. These um, anti-corruption agencies and constitutions have been created over the past 50 years uh, as constitution designers have learned uh, what's useful and uh, what needs to be done. Our constitution is, of course, an old constitution, and it's quite difficult to amend. Uh, So we can't put in uh, novelty, uh, even when it would be uh, appropriate. Uh, but another reason really is that uh, the level of corruption in the United States or of things that really need to be investigated uh, at a high level um, is relatively low compared to elsewhere in the world. Or to put it more straightforwardly, uh, the problem of high-level corruption in the United States is much less severe than it is elsewhere. And so we don't have a need for a permanent body uh, whose job is to supervise high-level cabinet officials or to look into uh, misconduct by high-level cabinet officials because it doesn't happen all that often. Hmm. I mean, I guess that's true. It's because you do hear it. Uh, you hear it in the Philippines, it seems like, or or in Brazil. You hear it maybe in South Africa. Is it? Um, and so, what does exactly our constitution say? How? What is the process through our constitution to evaluate and investigate our higher ranking leaders? Uh, well, there are two. One is the ordinary criminal process, uh, and uh, that's been used uh, quite effectively in some instances. Uh, I was just reading about Governor Blagojevich of Illinois, who Mm. was prosecuted for corruption and removed, uh, convicted, and as a result, removed from office. Um, The difficulty with that is that uh, those processes are controlled by politicians, uh, and so there's a risk that um, the Department of Justice will go more aggressively after politicians who are members of the other party and will ease up on politicians who are of their own party. Hmm. Um, And and, uh, the higher you go, the more difficult uh, it is to get the Justice Department to uh, mobilize. Um, To some extent, that's not a bad idea. That is uh, making it difficult to investigate high-level officials. makes it harder to use um, investigations as a political tool against your political enemies. But it it is a limit uh, on the effectiveness of this technique. The other thing that we use, uh, uh, or that's available, is a political mechanism. Uh, Actually, there are two parts to that. One is just public exposure. And so one way to think about the First Amendment is that it's a, it's a means for uh, addressing problems of political corruption. Mm. Yeah, exposing um, people, huh? Right, right. We just have newspapers who investigate and come up with stories, and then the people respond uh, as, as they or we think we should. Uh, and then the other mechanism which we've confined to uh, the presidency is impeachment. Um, technically, impe- impeachment is available for uh, any, the Constitution says, civil officer. Uh, but in practice, it, it affects only uh, presidential investigations. 
Hmm. Is I, I guess when when I look at it, um, that that's interesting because with President Trump now, you do see him taking on uh, the fake news kind of thing. So he's he's almost mitigating or trying to mitigate the public exposure issue. But um, how do you think it's been it's being handled now with President Trump? Because they there has he's fired uh, he's fired the FBI director Comey. Um, the Justice Department uh, or Jeff Sessions needed to recuse himself on the Russia investigation. And so you can almost start seeing some of your argument, the complexity of having our politicians involved in this. Then uh, what was uh, is it uh, Rubenstein? Um, Rosenstein. Rosenstein. He ends up uh, appointing Mueller as a special, I guess, uh, special investigator. Um, but now President Trump threatens to to fire Mueller. Is is this I guess is this just normal? Is this is this what you're talking about when you say we have a problem with our own investigations because it's just mired in the politics of it all? Uh, on the one hand, uh, it is uh, normal and to some degree troubling because uh, it means that there's risks of political interference with the investigation. Um, that those risks are mitigated by the uh, the public attention that the interference uh, would receive and and the political pushback or blowback that would occur uh, if uh, it actually if if the president actually for example removed uh, special investigator uh, Mueller. Um, on the other hand, uh, the nature of the particular allegations is complicated. Um, and the facts are unclear, and it looks like the process is chugging along at a form of sort of normal pace for this kind of complicated investigation. So, yes, um, you know, things are hanging out there for a while, uh, but the reason that that's so may be in part because the allegations involve complicated facts that need to be looked into. Mm. And I guess simultaneously, the media is still able to expose, you know, one new level of the investigation as they as it comes in to the next level of the investigation to who was uh, whose home was just, uh, you know, under warrant and, you know, who was just um, ran. I don't know what the word is. They were just investigated. Right. So I guess right. I guess there is exposure going on as well is but then you I mean, again, you see some of the complexity of um, uh, the past um, the past justice uh, head of the Justice Department uh, was on an airplane with President Clinton and, and President uh, ex-president Clinton came on the airplane, even though his wife was under investigation. And so if we had kind of our own independent, permanent investigating body, aside from our our Congress and Senate, those things could all be done without any involvement of the Senate. What, what do you think it would take to make that happen in the United States? Uh, well, uh, at some level, uh, we could recreate the system that we had from, I don't know, just after Watergate through the Clinton period of a statutory um, independent prosecutor or independent counsel system, the, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of such a statute. 
uh, Congress eventually let it expire because they thought the experience uh, of uh, Ken Starr and President Clinton was um, uh, not a happy one. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it could be done. Uh, uh, of, of course, in concept, we could amend the Constitution to create a, 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 a an anti-corruption investigating body. Uh, one problem uh, with doing that, uh, with having a permanent body, uh, is uh, the, the sort of, actually the relatively low level of problems mm-hmm. that are, need to be investigated. Once you create, uh, the, the, the experience with Ken Starr indicated that once you create um, uh, 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 an organization, whose job is to investigate and find out whether criminal activities have occurred, um, they will, that organization will just do its job. Yeah. Uh, and uh, whether or not, you know, the things being investigated really deserve the kind of attention mm-hmm. uh, um, they get. Um, there's this line I like to use, which is that the job of a prosecutor is to prosecute. Uh, and you sort of don't expect at the end of the year the annual report to say, yeah, we looked into a lot of things and we actually didn't do anything this year. We didn't find anything worth prosecuting mm. this yeah. year. But if you have a low level of, pro- of criminality or corruption, you actually would expect there not to be very many prosecutors. Yeah, you don't want them stirring stuff up, right? You don't want them out there looking for a problem. Right, right. And and, and once you create a, a, a a body whose job it is to find problems, yeah. they will find problems. It's so true, isn't it? That's, I guess, why it's so complicated. Let's um, let's do this, Mark. Let's take a quick break and come back and continue to discuss it. I want to talk about, is there a difference between a special investigator and a special prosecutor? We um, and, and help us understand what's going on right now with President uh, Trump's investigation. And really, what are we... What are we investigating? Is it collusion? Is it interference? What is it? We're speaking with Professor Mark Tushnet from Harvard Law School. He's walking us through an article he wrote um, about the U.S. Is, in ter- is terrible at investigating its own politicians. Blame it on the Constitution. We, you know, it's an older Constitution, and and yet also we've we've got a different condition here than maybe other uh, other democracies. So. Interesting insights, trying to do what we can to help you uh, understand what's going on in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today uh, we are talking about investigating our own politicians. We we seem to have a, an interesting problem. Uh, there's a good and a bad side, maybe. The good side is we, you know, compared to other countries, we don't tend to have as much uh, as, as many serious violations that would demand uh, a special prosecution or special investigations as maybe other countries. The downside is we also um, we have kind of a more complicated system because we don't have an exact provision for how to go about 
handling investigations of our highest officials. And so joining us to talk about it is Professor Mark Tushnet. He's a professor of law at Harvard, and his research includes studies examining the practice of judicial review in the United States and around the world. He also writes in the area of legal and particularly constitutional history with works on the development of the civil rights law in the United States and long-term project that he's been working on on the history of the Supreme Court. Um, and so, uh, Professor Tushnet, thank you again for your time and being with us. Uh, sure. When, when, when we look at this, um, it, there is – it seems like I think uh, uh, investigator or uh, counselor Mueller is a special counselor, they're calling him. But that's different than a special prosecutor. So we actually have – and, and maybe tell us what the difference is between a counselor, an investigator, or a prosecutor and – who do we want prosecutors to be the ones investigating our our officials? Uh, the The name really doesn't matter. Uh, they different names are given to different labels are given to different jobs, mostly to signal uh, either an expectation that prosecution will result or that uh, it's an open question whether somebody, whether there'll be a report that will lead to prosecution. Um, but the actual effect on um, how the process works doesn't really matter whether somebody's called a special prosecutor or a special counsel. Or Do they have the same powers like subpoena power, grand jury power, things like that? Uh, the answer is basically yes. Uh, the statutes or regulations creating them, just um, th- they have a list of powers, and then sort of at the beginning there'll be a name, but the powers afterwards tend not to be very different. Hmm. Um, there, there, there might be uh, a difference in terms of the scope of what you're involved, you're allowed to look into, um, but uh, uh, Special Counsel Mueller is charged with looking into things involving, I don't have the exact language in front of me, but uh, the, the allegation of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government and anything else that might arise in the course of that investigation. And so his charge is extremely broad. Um, and it doesn't really matter that he's not called a special prosecutor. Do you think it matters um, where the background of the person called to be the special counselor or prosecutor? Because like Ken Starr was a judge, uh, not necessarily an investigator. And it seems like he struggled creating any legitimacy or any, you know, unified, uniform result, it seemed like. Where and and does and does Counselor Mueller have a different uh, perspective because of his history as a prosecutor, as an FBI agent? I guess uh, the answer is yes. It does make a difference what your background is, but the difference will depend on what it is that you're supposed to be investigating. So uh, both uh, turns out that uh, the technical sort of trigger for the investigations of both President Clinton and President Trump were uh, complicated financial matters. Hmm. Uh, Whitewater initially with President Clinton uh, and these uh, uh, the allegations of Russian influence or collusion uh, in, in the case of President Trump. Um, it, it, it takes uh, investigating complicated matters that involve uh, money laundering or 
um, uh, transfers of money from one person to another, investments in the Whitewater uh, case, uh, is a sort of specialized task. There are people in the U.S. attorney's offices around the country whose careers are devoted to investigating financial crimes. Um, I couldn't walk in and know what to do. Uh, <laughs> and you're, and you're a Harvard professor. Well, I, right, but that's <laughs> I know, uh, but that's I guess the point is our best right. legal scholars wouldn't necessarily know what to do on that. Uh, right. I mean, what I would know is that I should find somebody who actually knew something about it yeah. and 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 rely on them. Uh, but uh, uh, but it, it it clearly helps to have people who are specialized in the kind of problem uh, that's involved. Uh, now, just this is to take. I, I referred earlier to Governor Blagojevich, which yeah. involved an investigation of sort of selling a position for uh, money, uh, President Obama's Senate seat. Um, uh, investigating that takes a different kind of investigation than finding out whether. Uh, Russians exercised influence over the Trump campaign by means of uh, financial contributions laundered through shell corporations located in, I don't know, you know, in, in the Bahamas or something like that. And so depending on the nature of the investigation, you might want to choose a different kind of investigator. It, from the outside, it looks like... Uh, uh, Mueller is the kind of person you would want to look into this kind of allegation. Let's see. That's I mean that that actually that's that brings some hope. And then and then you hear another spin going on, Professor. And I want you to help us on this one. Then it's then everyone's like, well, yeah, but on Mueller's teams, he keeps bringing in experts, prosecutors, in fact, and and investigators that have also donated to the Democratic Party. And that's where you start hearing you know, political persuasion and persuasiveness. And do we need to worry about that? Uh, and is, does, is there – or are these professionals that can remain independent? Uh, so I, I, I'm going to give a qualified answer. Uh, uh, we do need to worry about whether uh, an investigation turns into, a, uh, as, as critics would say, a partisan witch hunt. Hmm. Uh, uh, it is a risk that's occurred around the world that corruption investigations are will be turned into political weapons. Um, uh, it, it's happened in South Africa. My view is it's happening in Brazil now. Um, so you do have to worry about that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, first of all, you have to figure out what the evidence is that there is a partisan investigation going on, and, and I have to say, just this is my own evaluation, and people can take it for what it's worth. Um, it doesn't look to me as if the partisan leaning of the investigators in the Trump investigation are sufficient to, uh, uh, to be worrisome. Hmm. Uh, it's also the case, this is the other side of the story, that the people he, that Mueller and the people he's hired have very good professional reputations. Right. Um, and, and, and their professionalism 
offsets or whatever. Uh, and there may not be a partisan bias, but the professionalism uh, certainly weighs against that. Um, when they go to work in the morning, they don't think I'm a Democrat who wants to uh, get rid of President Trump. They go to the work saying to themselves, I'm a professional investigator and lawyer who has, whose job is to discover the facts. Yeah. I mean, really, that's that's kind of all I guess we could hope for. It seems like it would be in the best interest of the president to not necessarily keep threatening to fire Mueller um, versus just cooperate and, and get this thing done quickly. Uh, well, from uh, from the outside, you would think so. But uh, <laughs> Something he, else? he knows more of what's going on to find out. Than that's I true. Do. huh? It's, uh, so does I mean, and I guess one of the concerns I would have about this is where does it end? Because it almost seems like the prosecutor could start with Russia, but end up with a million other financial issues or holdings or other problems with uh, President Trump. Or so are they limited just to a Russia investigation? The, the charge that uh, the Mueller investigation has is not limited to the Russian investigation. Um, it it uh, it says anything else, anything that arises out of that investigation. Um, one of the things that appears to be happening, again, I'm based on news reports, not yeah. from any inside knowledge, um, is that they're pursuing a more or less standard prosecutorial technique, which is to find out if the people they're interested in uh, have engaged in other forms of criminal activity uh, and then use those uh, claims, those the results of that in- investigation, to put pressure on them to talk about mm. the Russia investigation. So it's it just as a, again, from an outside perspective, it seems to me highly likely that the Mueller investigators will discover various forms of either minor or serious financial crimes involved with real estate investments uh, among the people around Trump. It's, it's a, uh, I think it, it's, a notor- it's an industry that is notorious for um, illegality. Mm. So they're highly likely to find something. Uh, then the question is, do they use that merely to place pressure on people, or does that become the focus of what their work is? Yeah. Um, and can they turn – yeah, will anyone turn more right. information over to get somebody higher up in the, in the situation? Right, um, exactly. Do you, do you – I guess as we wrap up – uh, what would be your recommendation? I mean, I mean, an entire constitutional amendment seems not necessarily plausible. Do, do we need to go back to kind of having a sitting uh, special investigator always sitting by ready for these things, an independent investigator? What would you recommend if you know, somebody happened to turn to you, Mark, and say, what should we do to make sure our, we keep this place clean? Yeah, this may sound a little sort of Pollyanna-ish, but I think that what we have is actually pretty good, good. Uh, given our circumstances. Uh, we have a system in which when something serious, serious allegations are made, as they have been, uh, the Justice Department uh, sort of steps aside, 
uh, because of political pressure, yeah. not because of the law, but because of political pressure, and creates uh, an independent investigation, uh, uh, sort of one time for this problem only. Um, and then again, uh, that investigation is defended against interference by public exposure and political pressure. That seems to me not a bad system when you have, again, as I've said, uh, this kind of problem is rare. Um, if it were more pervasive, then you'd want a more permanent solution. But this one seems to be, to me, uh, all right. Seems to be holding water. Well, Professor uh, Tushnet, we appreciate you. Mark Tushnet, again, is a professor of law at Harvard and uh, wonderful, just a wonderful person also wrote the article, the U.S. is terrible at investigating politicians. Blame it on the Constitution. Uh, for now, it appears to be working, even though President Trump doesn't necessarily like what's going on and still threatens some uh, action. But in the end, you know, it's, it's happening. And by the way, it feels like to me, uh, it, you know, Special Counselor Mueller seems to be a, about as good of a pro as you can get. Uh, President Bush and President Obama both uh, asked him to serve as the FBI director. So I guess it's bilateral focus. Powerful stuff. We'll continue the journey, continue the learning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we got it. We've got to address this this racist. Um, I don't know what we're even going to call it. Turmoil that's going on in the country. You and especially when it comes to your religion, your faith, your belief, there has to be a point, folks, where if you purport to be a uh, a Christian. And you believe in Jesus saying that thou should love your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And that's the first great commandment. And the second is like unto it, that you should love your neighbor as thyself. If you believe in that, then how on earth do you justify not treating every soul, every being on this earth with love and as equal to you? You can't have it both ways. You cannot say that uh, you're a Christian, I don't believe, and also uh, try to disparage somebody of another color. It doesn't work, folks. It can't work. You have a God that loves everyone. And uh, if he tells you to love your neighbor as yourself, he also is assuming you would treat them with the same respect that you treat yourself and your same color. I mean, it's it's crazy to think that color is what divides us when we all bleed the same color. So uh, let's take care of each other, for heaven's sakes. This earth is too small to let this happen. Let's look after one another. That's hour number one of the program. Continue with us. The next journey, uh, we'll be talking about uh, how, to, how to create peak performance in your life. That's all up next on The Matt Townsend Show, right here on BYU Radio.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Okay, we're at it again. Hour number two of the program. You, uh, you're not going to want to miss it because today we're celebrating Roller Coaster Day. The day of the ups and downs. By the way, it all began uh, back in 1898, which was where the very first patent for the roller coaster ride was issued. I'm not big into roller coasters. Mm. Roller coasters make me nauseous. Really? Yeah. I went to that one um, place. I don't want to name the name, but it rhymes with Blotz, Blurry, Blarm. Okay. And um, they have some roller coasters, crazy roller coasters there. I'm I'm convinced that all of their rides are designed to make you sick. And I got really sick. And ever since then, I have no desire to be on a roller coaster. I think you get nauseous because usually roller coasters are somewhere at a fair where you've just eaten a bunch of fried food and yes. nachos. And something says, hey, you need to get this out of your system. Yeah, today we're celebrating Roller Coaster Day. If you don't love a roller coaster, then you can just love the up and down ride that we're all experiencing in America. How about the Love Roller Coaster? Now that's a great. That's the. That's at the. I won't name names, but it rhymes with Blizzneyland. Mm-hmm. There's that. It's a small world after all. Ride. I wouldn't you, call that a roller and, coaster. But, no, it, but you know, but the roller coaster of just the love that you feel after. Th- there's a message of love. Yeah. Well, and if you're with brought your, to you by a very annoying song, if you're with your wife, it's, there's you can kiss. Isn't that right? Closed a lot. Is it? I've, I've been there a couple of times. It's, it's always closed. It's probably because so many people jump off of the boat and take pictures with the animatronic. <laughs> hold on, is yeah. that what you do? Oh yeah, yeah, we don't do that. And if you know, if you hold your arm on the side of the boat, like you can stop your boat from moving. Oh, see, you because you, you just grab the side. You of, lived near Blizzneyland. We know, yeah, so we you know, know all, all the, the tricks. We know how to get away with, you know, having a really loose seatbelt so you can stand up on Indiana Jones. Well, but be careful because there are people that have been decapitated on certain rides. On the Matterhorn, I'm convinced that they took out the trees that grow those little spiky balls on them because of my family. Really? We would grab them off of the trees. And then when you saw the abominable snowman on the ride, we'd launch those at him and they would stick to him. Wow. Insider information from the Simpson family. And Homer, if those Homer and the gang. If Marge. those Marge. if those weren't in season, we would just take some uh, licorice, put it in our mouth, pull it out and chuck Oh, it. you guys are the See, I'm devil. the youngest. Mm-hmm. This is the influence that my older siblings had on me. Wow. But I turned out okay. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of stuff, uh, including Roller Coaster Day, plus some other headlines we'll get to. A bear attack, or I mean a bear breaks into an SUV. Scary, scary. I mean, there's a lot of bear stories going on. Global warming, I'm pretty sure, has something to do with it. Uh, We'll get to that crazy story. Plus a burglar tries to disguise himself as the sun. We just had one that tried to disguise himself as a ghost. Well, yeah, but the sun? The sun. The sun, S-U-N. That's pretty massive. I mean, like, well, I am the sun. How would you do that? Just be really bright and hot. (laughs) Pretty easy. Duh. Sorry. 
We'll get to that. Uh, plus, today our our guest will be talking to us about how to reach peak performance in your job at work, and one of the ways may be actually to not work. Well, I mean, if that's the case, then most of the uh, staff here, with their consumption of Facebook and YouTube, they're at peak performance. Then, <laughs> wait a minute, say <laughs> that again. The our, be- our, one of the best ways to actually reach peak performance might be to work to not work. Yeah, because there comes a point in your day when you need to actually become creative. And many times, in fact, the research shows your most creative times are not while working. Sometimes it's just while showering. So maybe the best way to be productive would be to shower three or four times a day. Why can't they just install a shower here at work? They do have a shower here at work. I'm not telling you where it is, but they have a shower. It's for radio hosts and uh, other television hosts, not for co-hosts. Mm. Sorry. Is this the one in your office? Because that's more of a fountain. No, this is, this is in a special room in the building. It's more of a bidet is how I would describe it. I have a bidet in my office. You didn't know? No. Like, I, thought I thought it was a drinking was a, fountain. That was a drinking fountain. <laughs> oh, brother. Yikes. No, so if peak performance is not necessarily doing work – there's one guy out there in the office. He's always watching oh, these multiplayer video games. Yeah, he's yeah. killing it. Yeah, he's on top of things. You, but you'd think he would then, because you still have to produce results, right? So, but you're but the idea that you just have Wrong. to work. <laughs> the idea you have to work longer and harder and harder and longer and longer and longer and longer. All that does is produce burnout. Right. You got You've got to produce results so but it, without killing your ability to produce results tomorrow. It's it, the goose and the golden egg. Is this maximizing your downtime? This is no. This is this is creating. No. Space, downtime, in your work time. All right. So downtime can, in my work time. Downtime in my work time. I'm not familiar with that. So you can have a better time with more results time. And then that is a good time for everyone. And it could be including sleepy time. Yeah. Taking naps. It does for me. Nice. This it's is a good. I'm looking forward to this now. It's going to be a great book. Yeah. Great book. We'll get to that in a bit. Uh, plus other headlines, of course, empty news as well. But let's get to the real headlines uh, with Terry South. Terry, tell us what's going on around the rest of the country. Lawmakers of all political stripes blasted President Trump for his remarks Tuesday regarding the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia on Saturday, which ended with a counter-protester's death after she was run over by a car. Trump said both sides were to blame for the violence, and he defended white nationalists who were uh, protesting a very important statue coming down, calling them some of them very fine people. He did say that. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio tweeted that the organizi- organizers of the event are 100% to blame for the number for a number of reasons, and Trump can't allow white supremacists to share only part of the blame. They support the idea. Uh, they support uh, idea which cost uh, nation and world so much pain. Some of this from Twitter. Does so. he remember World War II? That's what Rubio's referring to. The white supremacist groups will see being assigned only 50% of blame as a win, which they did. And we cannot allow this old evil to be resurrected. These harsh statements counter the praise Trump received from white supremacists and former uh, Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard David Duke, who said Trump showed honesty and courage while telling the truth about Charlottesville. So, uh, as ongoing cities and states... By the way, you can love, you can love the, the... What's it called? You can love the statue. Okay. You can think it's the greatest statue in the world. That's not the point. No. It's not the point. Yeah. You, you can't hate people. 
Cities and states accelerated their plans to remove Confederate monuments from public property Tuesday as the violence over the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville, Virginia, moved leaders across the country to plan to wipe away much of the remaining Old South imagery. Gainesville, Florida, where the Daughters of the Confederacy removed a statue of a Confederate soldier known as Old Joe. Durham, North Carolina, we talked about this yesterday, protesters used a rope to pull down a Confederate monument erected in 1924, and overnight in Baltimore, they, uh, many statues across the city were removed by uh, by city workers. The anti-Confederate monument seemed to ensure that other memorials would come down soon. Many local and state governments announced that they would be removing statues and other imagery from public land or consider doing so in the aftermath of Saturday's protests that have, uh, you know, been kind of what everyone's talking about yeah. for the last few days. <laughs> It's crazy. The Lincoln Memorial was vandalized with bright red graffiti early Tuesday morning around 4.30. Did you hear about this? I did, but I can't believe it. Officials with the National Park Service said the red spray paint appeared to state, uh, you know, expletive law. So it was something about the law. One of the the memorial's columns overlooking the National Mall. Another instance in silver spray paint was also discovered on the Smithsonian uh, wayfinding sign in on the... In Constitution Avenue, working to remove the graffiti is already underway. Uh, so they're trying to save the monument as yeah. it's been defaced. So, <sighs> in other news, a federal district court judge has ordered Costco to pay Tiffany more than 19 million for selling generic diamond engagement rings that were marked using Tiffany's name. <gasps> so, they, okay, let, let me get this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they sold Tiffany diamond rings, diamond rings um, at Costco. Well, rings with the Tiffany name on it. But they really weren't – Costco hadn't – it wasn't Tiffany's se- selling them through Costco? No. They just used the name? Yeah. Oh, well, that's a problem. Why but, would anybody believe that they could get <laughs> Tiffany diamonds or no, rings at Costco? No, I bought a Rolls Costco. Royce at Costco last week. Yeah, that's not a Rolls Royce. Oh, boy. Oh, that it's was Royce. A, that was a Rhodes Royce. Yeah. You know, like the Rhodes, Rolls? Rhodes Bacon Surf. Yeah. The rings in question had a – a pronged setting that Costco said is commonly known as a Tiffany setting. However, some of the display cases simply describe the rings as Tiffany instead of Tiffany setting or Tiffany style. Tiffany Trump? No, no the sales lady that was selling them, her name was, her Tiffany. Name was Tiffany. It says, hello, my name is oh, Tiffany. she's a great name. lady. Yeah. I don't know so why they're against the ju- her. The judge ruled on Monday that Tiffany is entitled to $11 million as profits for trademark infringement plus interest and $8.25 million and punitive damages, which was awarded in a jury by, in October. They also said Costco was uh, permanently prohibited from using Tiffany as a standalone term when selling its products. Uh, the lawsuit was filed in actually tw- 2013 on Valentine's wow. Day. And they call it the equivalent of sending Costco a black rose. Yeah. Where did you get your ring? It's a Tiffany's ring. Where did you get it? Tiffany's? No, I got it at Costco. I in, got a rotisserie in chicken, Utah, too. In Salt Lake. As much as I love Costco... I, I am kind of glad that somebody's pushing back because all the stories that I've heard about Costco behind the scenes it kind of portrays them as a bully. Really? You know, like if yeah. uh, they'll they'll get certain vendors in there and, uh, you know, they'll they'll say, oh, we're going to sell it at this price. If you don't like it, then yeah. you can just take your business elsewhere. But we're as a Costco. vendor, I, I'm like, okay. Cause it, but you take all the risk, right? So if I put my yeah. book in Costco – They'll say we want a thousand of them, so you got to put a thousand of them in there. But if they don't sell, you got to take a th- you have to take eight hundred of them back. So it, that does feel like bullying. Except there's nothing better than bullying someone over a foot long hot dog. 
You can bully all day long if it, that hot dog only cost me two bucks, <laughs> or a, it's a pizza. only a buck fifty. A buck fifty, yeah. and it comes with a soda. See, so bully, bully, bully. And in my personal life, I try not to judge people. Yeah. I try really hard. I fail constantly, but I try no, not you do. to. Yeah, you're horrible. But when I'm walking through the register at like ten o'clock in the morning at Costco, and people are throwing down hot dogs, Hold it's on. ten o'clock in the morning. Well, I know, but that's breakfast. Or someone grabs a pizza. It's a, it's a breakfast like, hot dog. It's 10 o'clock, people. What are you doing? Yeah, but what if somebody starts their day at 4 in the morning? That's lunch for them. That's true. You guys start your, you started, no. you start your morning very early. At 7. No, you, no, you, no, you well, started normally two during hours the week, but I'm talking there. like Saturday. Oh. It's oh. Saturday. You're there with like three of your kids at 10 o'clock in the morning <laughs> and you're all eating hot dogs. Some parents have kids that wake them up at 4 in the morning. Right. That's all I'm saying. It just seems a Ken little, like my kids. Some people, a little early. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. I think, I think my kids are aware of what my one sleep-in day is, and they get together and have a little meeting together, and they say, okay, let's wake up dad at you know 5 what? in the morning on his one way. This doesn't day. go away. The rest of your life, everything will align the rest of your life for you never to sleep. Hmm. I promise. <laughs> it won't matter forever. I have been at it. How long? 23 years, 24 years with my kids, and I, have, I haven't had a good night's sleep forever. Because – so my son is on a camping trip, so we're like loving it, loving it. And then out of nowhere, he'll show up at 5 in the morning even though he's supposed to be on a camping trip or whatever. Well, it started raining, so we all left early. Maybe you saw a bear. Maybe you saw a bear. And we'll get to that story. So scary. Hey, by the way, great news for everybody. A hot bath could have similar benefits to exercise. Could. <laughs> It's not a drill. It's a steamy bath. You don't need to exercise anymore. According to a new study uh, published in the journal Temperature. Mm. Mm -hmm. Self-serving article, it sounds like. That that is a hot article right there. Totally hot. Found that an hour-long soak in a hot water tub um, produced the same anti-inflammatory and blood sugar responses as 60 minutes of moderate physical activity. Are these the same people that try to convince us that cold showers are good for us? Yes. Is that a problem? Now, is this soaking in the tub or actually taking the bath? No, you, have to, you have to be soaking. So you soak, and then maybe if you need to actually have the, the cleansing property, you could stand up and take a shower. Yeah. Now, what constitutes We're not, soaking? This, this isn't a hygiene activity. This is, okay. this is to lose weight. This is, I mean, this is to get you healthy. I just have some issues with bath. Does it a help if I, if I take like a baster and baste myself Ooh, while I'm soaking? It's a good question. Mm, only, if, only, if you're in the, only if you're in the oven. Okay. But other than that, because it seems that activities that increase heat shock, it shocks the protein. So a warm, a nice hot bath shocks your proteins, and it may help improve blood sugar control. And it's an, it's, an, it's an option for those people that can't just go exercise. Like say you have diabetes and your feet and your legs hurt. And right. so all of a sudden you can go soak and get a benefit, but you'd have to soak in a hot tub or take a sauna. That's what I was going to say. Would a sauna work? Sauna would work just but as well. isn't a hot bath dangerous for people, for men who are trying to have children, let's just say? Uh, maybe. I've heard, I've heard as much. Uh, have you? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, um, hmm. I, I didn't know we were going to go there, but <laughs> sure. I would yeah. just... I think that was from Conception magazine. Yeah. Conception is... <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a less popular magazine. Right. I think it's also a Christopher Nolan movie, too. Conception. Conception. Anyway, um, it, the, the, it has to be for an hour long. 
It's it's equal to a, an hour of cycling. Well, an hour, an hour of a hot bath. You have to have an hour long session you're in way, a one hundred and four degree bath. You're way beyond pruny fingers at that point. Yeah, you Wait are. Wait a minute, you're a raisin by then. When you go to the gym and you get in that hot tub that's at least one hundred four degrees, it, there's a sign that clearly says, "Don't stay in here longer than fifteen minutes." No, but that's because of the bacteria. Hmm. But if you're in your the own gym tub, bacteria, so yeah. your own bacteria is okay. Yeah, absolutely. You got to love your own bacteria. So, what do you do for an hour? Well, like I, read a I, book, Netflix. Yeah. You could meditate, maybe, maybe do some Netflix. Oh, alone with my own thoughts. Uh-huh. I like to. Like that's when I do my best writing. <laughs> I always write in the bathtub. It's just a great place to do your writing. Uh, let's let's get to one more story about a bear breaking into an SUV. Now, apparently, Jeff's been researching this one. Yeah, we've done stories about bears breaking into people's garages before. This one, this bear broke into an SUV because, you know, maybe he's got good taste. Bear <laughs> broke into a, a sport utility vehicle in southwestern Colorado, trashed its interior, and caused it to roll out of a driveway and smash into a mailbox. Oh, boy. So usually it's those bear. darn kids with their bats, but this time it was a bear in an SUV. Right, exactly. Try explaining that to your wife. <laughs> yeah, right, honey. It was honey. the bear, honey, mm-hmm. I promise. Neighbors heard the crash early Friday and called law enforcement uh, law enforcement officers in the small city of Durango. Ron Cornelius joked that he doesn't usually get up at 5 a.m. unless there is a bear driving a car down the street. The Durango Herald reports Cornelius took photographs of the car with its steering wheel pulled off oh, and the wow. radio pulled out of the dash. That is one tough bear. So he, was, he was trying to jack the, yeah, the, trying to... the innards of this mm-hmm. car. Sure. So the bear's actions may have released the parking brake or put the transmission into neutral, causing the SUV to roll out of a driveway. The SUV's back window was broken. Hmm. The bear was gone when authorities arrived. That naughty See, bear. To me, this would sound like it would be a, a selling point to SUV dealerships. Really? This car is so popular, even bears want to drive it. Even the local bears want to drive it. Yeah. Well, well uh, maybe. Anyway, I wanted to – you know how last time we had a bear story, there was this YouTube sensation about uh, the bear breaking into somebody's garage. There's another YouTube video that, that was just put out about this very story, yeah. actually. Sleeping, sleeping and snoring Startled awake by a roaring Cause a big bear stealing my car Not cool, I said big bear <clears throat> Stop it now Everyone told me Bears are sweet on my car Said Big Bear's bound to come Take it in the night at night And he did And he did Had me going like <laughs> Nothing I could do but yell When this bear took off in my sweet SUV Which he then started trashing And then Bear backed up into my mailbox <laughs> Just installed it I said, no, 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 no. Bears breaking out my back window. Tearing, tearing, tearing up my car. Stop it now.
Tom Hanks, Michael Phelps, Ellen DeGeneres, and Beyonce, they all probably feel intense pressure to go above and beyond while performing in their areas of expertise. Have you ever felt the same uh, pressure to perform? You know, in order to reach your peak performance, many top performers add something vital to their routines that most people wouldn't expect. It's not more work. It's more rest. Brad Stolberg, author of the book Peak Performance, joins us today to talk with us about how to reach your own peak performance. Brad, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. So is that is that is that truly one of the keys is that you got to be you got to be willing to turn it off if you want to be able be able to turn it on. Yeah, that is such a key and and so often overlooked. Um, we like to think that when we are grinding away and working hard, that's what creates our best. But what actually creates our best is when we rest and recover in between those periods of hard work. It's the rest that, uh, that I guess, helps us. Talk about how you got interested in peak performance, Brad. So, yes, in my former life, um, before I began writing professionally, I was a consultant at um, the large international consulting firm McKinsey & Company. Mm. And it was my first uh, formal job out of school, and I absolutely loved it. I threw myself into the work 110%. Um, The work probably called for 60 to 65-hour weeks. It's a pretty intense job to begin with. And I quickly made that into 80 to 90-hour weeks. I was all in. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and and I loved it. It was intellectually stimulating. I was young. I was having an impact. I was working with really smart people. And for a while, I performed really, really well at that clip. But, oh, about a year to a year and a half into the gig, um, I just started to feel burnt out. Uh, Emotionally, physically, cognitively, my performance was suffering, and it all caught up to me. Um, So at that point, I was fortunate to to be able to have the opportunity to pursue graduate school in public health. And when I went to public health school, I was keenly interested in um, really health outside of a medical sense, but health, what does it take to thrive, and how can people perform at their best without burning out, without making some of the mistakes that I did? Is it even possible to be a peak performer and do so over the long haul? Uh, so that piqued my interest. And then after school, I began writing, and, and this book is a culmination of my research. And, and what was amazing, I think, about that example is be, you loved what you were doing. You were driven by it. It was exciting. You were passionate about it. You were totally into it, which is probably, I guess, why you ended up working more and more. It, it seems like that's one of the normal tendencies of once you start loving what you do, you you work more at it, but the more you work at it, you simultaneously probably are harming yourself. Exactly. You know, my co-author on the book, his name is Steve Magnus. He coaches a bunch of uh, world-class Olympic caliber runners. And um, he always says that the hardest part of his job is not having these type A intrinsically motivated individuals push hard. It's holding them back and getting them to rest. And I think it's a common trap. The more that you love your work, the more that you're you're likely to exert yourself to a point of diminishing returns. Yeah. Does in fact, uh, I read somewhere about the example of Bernard Lag- Laggett, uh, one of the American runners who would always take a. He's one of the best American runners there is, and he, he would always take like a five week break at the end of every year. Yeah, exactly. That's correct. Um, and he's he's run at the world-class level into his 40s. So not only has he been one of the best, but he's been one of the best, I want to say it's five Olympic cycles over oh, wow. 15, 16 years. Yeah, it's just remarkable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when we spoke with Legat, what, what he, he alluded to is this end-of-season break he takes every year. Um, and just like you said, he'll take five weeks off where he doesn't run at all. 
and he credits his sustainability to that break, and, and not just for physical rejuvenation, but for psychological rejuvenation as well, allowing him to kind of turn the gas off, um, like I said, not only physically, but, but relax his focus a little bit. And, I mean, I guess part of that is, I mean, I, you get it if you're a runner because just the physical, uh, the toll it must take on your body, but I guess intellectually, mentally, we need that rest every bit as much as anybody else. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's there's a wealth of research that um, that, like I said in the opening, although we think that we're getting smarter or learning or problem solving when we're actually deep at work, um, it often happens that those breakthrough in thoughts and the way that our brain retains, consolidates, and connects information that that happens when we're at rest. And I like to think of this on three different levels. On a micro level, it's just about taking short breaks throughout the day. I'm sure most of your listeners have had an experience where they had an aha moment or some kind of breakthrough thought while they were in the shower or while they were commuting home from work or while they were perhaps on a run or a walk. And these are all examples of micro breaks where you just allow your mind to turn off a little bit. And it's when your conscious mind, your effortful thinking mind turns off that your subconscious or your more creative mind starts to work. Uh, One of my favorite studies that I came across in researching the book showed that although we spend the vast majority of our waking hours doing effortful thinking, that is focusing on something, over 40% of our creative thoughts come during these transient periods of rest. Hmm. So throughout the day, micro breaks, really, really important, conducive to problem solving and creativity. The second level I like to think about is sleep. So all the information that we're exposed to throughout the day, there's such a wealth of information. So not only the things that we worked on, but the people we met, the color of the car that we park next to in the parking lot. Our brain has so much to deal with. And it's only when we sleep that our brain, like I said, goes through all that information, makes sense of it, decides what's worth filing away, and decides how to file it away. And that um, all so takes sleep, place while sleeping, which important. is, so if you're neglecting your sleep, you're neglecting your body's ability to organize your life, your experience. One hundred percent. I think that it's such a trap that people fall into that they think they can be more productive by sleeping less. And I came out of this book realizing that sleep is one of the most productive things that you can do. If you're not getting at least seven hours of sleep, that's the lowest hanging fruit for so many people, not only for their performance, but for their general uh, mental and physical health as well. Isn't that funny? And it's because, again, we we have this this habit, uh, this belief that action is supreme and the key and movement. And so it's almost like we don't even look at sleep as a value add because it's not enough yeah. action. It's not enough. And we do the same thing at work. We don't think of somebody sitting there at their off in their desk meditating for 10 minutes. We wouldn't see that as valuable. We would see it as lazy. Right, and, and that's such a, a paradigm shift that I hope that listeners make and I hope that people that read the book make is that rest is not something that's passive. Rest is not at the expense of work. Rest is a part of the work. So rest is a very active process. The brain is in overdrive, just in a different way than we're accustomed to when we're resting. So my framing in my own life, because I'm one of those intrinsically driven OCD you know, type A pushers, I've started to frame rest not as separate from the work, but again, as a part of the work, and it's made it easier for me to rest when I think about it like that. Yeah, you've got to. And um, it's funny, too, because I guess we we laugh, or I guess we, we used to revere the person that had four hours of sleep and they could just make everything work, but I almost pity them because 
it's got to be doing something to your abilities if if even if even if you seem to function well are you just borrowing are you just living on borrowed time like we hear president trump sleeps 4 hours i know people that can only sleep 5 hours a night does it eventually catch up with you or are there some humans that are kind of superhuman that way it eventually catches up to you i've yet to come across a superhuman um I don't think that there has been a superhuman that has been studied in the literature. Um, I think that you can burn really bright for a very short period of time, but kind of like what happened to me, it's, it's just unsustainable. And, you know, without getting political on the show, looking at President Trump, a lot of people that are onlookers on both sides of the aisle have commented that, you know, when he tends to be a loose cannon, it comes after hours where he's up tweeting at two in the morning. That's true. And huh? there's a direct line between sleep and willpower. And the yeah. less you sleep, the less willpower you have. So it's it's not surprising. No, that's actually it's it's there's got to be something going on there. Uh, we're speaking with Brad Stolberg. He is the author of the book Peak Performance, and uh, he's also um, a, a columnist for the for New York and Outside magazines. Um, and today we are we're, we're doing what we can to understand how to be a better uh, performer. In the book, you also you talk about kind of a uh, a, a, a process or a, like a growth formula. What 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 is the what what is the formula to peak performance? So the overarching formula is um, is exactly what you said. It's something that in the book we call the growth equation, and that is this notion of stress plus rest equals growth. Stress. Plus rest equals growth. Correct. So, so stress is good, I guess, with rest equals growth. And so when you have stress without rest, not good, uh, or rest without stress, not good. Exactly. And, and by stress, I think that we should pause for a minute. When I'm speaking of stress and is it's applied in this growth equation in the book, not talking about stress is – you know, maybe a conventional definition of the nerves or the angst you feel before a performance review at work or if you're in a fight with your significant other or your child. Um, we use stress, my co-author and I, in a much more biological sense. So some kind of stimulus that will challenge the body or the mind. Mm. Um, I think the easiest example to bring this equation to life is how would you make a muscle grow? And the way to make a muscle grow is you go to the gym and you lift the weight, right? Right. But if you pick up a weight that is way too heavy, way too much stress, what ends up happening is you either quit and you're like, I don't want to do this. You lose motivation, you're done. Or you might injure yourself. You might throw out your back trying to hoist it up. That's too much stress. The flip side of that is if you go to the gym and you pick up a one-pound weight, you could sit there all day, every day, curling that one-pound weight, and your muscle probably won't grow. Not enough stress to elicit growth. So to make your muscle grow, you have to find the sweet spot of stress, but then you also have to follow it up with rest. Because even if you find that perfect dose of stress that makes you ever so slightly uncomfortable, if you just sit there and lift that weight all day without resting, your muscle will literally burn out. Hmm. So it's about finding the right dose of stress, following it with rest, and that's what elicits growth. And the example I gave is, is very physical, but throughout the book we discuss how this equation applies to cognitive and emotional growth as well. Because, I mean, it really is the same thing. You've, you, if you have too much, you, you probably just shrink and evaporate. If you have too little, you don't grow. So you've got to find the happy spot. And I guess, how do you find, how do you find your happy spot of stress? Uh, how, do, how do you find it personally? I love this question because it really gets into the application. So I'm glad that you asked it, right? Conceptually, everyone understands it, but how to apply it, a yeah. little bit trickier. 
So the, the way that I like to think about this is it shouldn't be something that makes you so anxious that you feel your heartbeat palpitating in your neck or that you're losing sleep at night. So if you're taking on a project at work or in your personal life, if you're thinking about having a child, maybe you're newly married, and the thought of that just makes you physiologically anxious and you're losing sleep about it, that's probably too much stress. Hmm. The flip side is if you take on a project at work or you speak with your significant other about taking on something new in your relationship and it just feels almost boring, like you're going through the motions, that's probably not enough stress for growth. That, there you risk becoming complacent, I'd say. Yeah. So you want to find something that arouses you and excites you. And maybe you have this thought where if I did it 10 times, I could probably succeed eight or nine, but I'm not positive if I could go 10 for 10. I really have to work hard to ensure that I'd be able to go 10 for 10. And that's the kind of good growth promoting challenge, good growth promoting stress. Well, and, um, and in this the book, I call it a just manageable challenge, a just manageable challenge, because this is um, this gets into that use stress idea. This gets into flow this that, that you get into this space where you need to be aroused. So if life is boring for you, you're in trouble. But if life is too arousing for you that you always want to sleep and avoid it, you're also in trouble. So there's somewhere in between. And I guess part of that is just we just need to keep moving our our performance up up that channel, right? So when we get really good at something, we would slide down and it might become boring to us. So then we need to find a way to get it to be more challenging. Exactly. And, and, and you know, it's funny because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reverse my own words. I said that the application is tricky. And I think it's tricky because a lot of people, and myself included, I'm, I'm trying to practice what I preach. I think I'm getting a little bit better. We just kind of go through our days without the awareness to even realize, right, are, are, are we in that channel? But if you bring some acute awareness to your life and, and you pick an area of your life that you might want to grow, get better in, whatever you want to call it, and then you just ask yourself, what's the next logical step? Most people that I've worked with come to, can, can come to an answer. So I think that, that's another good way to think about it, right? Yeah. So maybe, again, maybe it's at work. Maybe you're training for a marathon. Um, maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe you're the head of a company and you're thinking of this on an organizational level. I think a really good way to think of it is what is a capability or capacity that I would like to improve in and what do I see as the next logical step? And then that would take you to the next logical step of peak performance. Exactly. That's powerful. Powerful. Uh, let's take a break, Brad. We're, we're talking with Brad Stolberg, the author of the book Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with the New Science of Success. He's helping us understand uh, sometimes to get performance, peak performance, you need to take a break, but you also need to kind of find that sweet spot of stress, not where you're overstressed, not where you're understressed, but where you're, you're continually in the groove of, um, of growth. It's powerful stuff, folks, helping us all uh, be peak performers. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Talking peak performance and the book Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with the New Science of Success. 
And it's written by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. And uh, Brad's joining us on the line right now. Brad is a researcher, a writer, a speaker, and a coach on health and science and uh, the science of human performance. Uh, Brad, thank you again for being with us today. Yeah, thanks. I'm really enjoying our conversation. Me too. And and you you've you've taught us that. So all we really need to do first and foremost is identify what we want to improve, like whatever the goal is, and then ask ourselves a very subtle question, but logical question. But what what like what's the next logical step to reach that goal? And in a way, we all we all know, right? I mean, our heart, our conscience, uh, and um, our subconscious knows what we need to be doing. We just yeah, got to. We just got to put would, it down. Yeah, we just we, right. We 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 just got to do it. Um, and 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 do it in in a non reckless, you know, smart way. Getting back to this growth equation, that when you take on that next logical go, what what we might call stress or a just manageable challenge, it's important to make sure that you're building in some periods for rest and reflection, almost like so you can absorb the work, so your body and mind can adapt to this new state, um, in in a healthy way. Is it what what is it that exhausts us? Is it is it just the sheer number of choices that we have to make every day like from putting our socks on to, you know, get, getting to work on time? Um is it is it the number of choices that we have to make? Is it the quality of choices? Is it the depth? Is it our lack of ability to do this? What is it that that so exhausts us and actually steals our peak performance? I think it's all of those things. Um so, you know, we, we live in a world where we are constantly connected. Um, and, and digital technology has so many advantages. I use it. I, I love it. And one of the disadvantages is, is that we're, we're always reachable. And there are always things happening that, that are fighting for our attention and that we can tune our attention to. So I think that what, what's happening now more than ever is that people are just so busy. Um, and, and, and there's very little space to, to do deep focus work or to check out and rest because we're constantly checking in on something or constantly thinking about the next thing that we have to do. And I think that's what wears us out. Mm. Um, you know, a simple analogy is imagine if a runner was doing a workout where they were running three times one mile really hard. And throughout that mile, they got alerts on their cell phone. They were thinking about emails that they had to write. They stopped every 30 seconds to open up a new browser. Yeah. The quality of the workout would go to crap. And it would be enjoyable, and they'd never want to do it again. And that's how a lot of us go through our days. It's so true. We're, like, it, you would never expect a runner, um, like a, like a, especially like a world-class runner, to, to allow any of those distractions while they're doing their practice. It, but we do it all day long, and we, even, we actually call all of it work. Right, because it's yeah, it, it's all work, you know. I'm just doing my social media. What you don't want me to grow my social media? So it's, but in the exactly. end, and, it's and, not and work. That, right. It, well, or maybe it is work. You know, for me as a writer, social media it is a part of my job, and it's something that I focus on. Um, what I've gotten a lot better at, in in what I would just recommend to to listeners, is to be really deliberate and mindful about when you're doing it. I think when people run into a problem is when throughout the day and throughout the constancy of, of, of whatever they're doing, they're constantly checking their social media. They're constantly opening up their email. They're constantly surfing the Internet. Um, I think it's much better to, to make two or three half-hour blocks during the day where you say, you know what, this is my time for Twitter, Facebook. This is my time to browse the Internet, whatever your thing may be, but not to let it encroach on those periods of good, hard, deep focus work. Mm. 
Because, too, I, I just noticed yesterday I, I receive an email, which was a distraction. Then I have to think about it, then answer the email or find the thing that they want and then send it to them and then hope that that's good enough. And then they interrupt me again 10 minutes later. So it's almost like we've, we've actually built a bridge of these constant interruptions. And you're saying, well, you can move all of those interruptions to three times a day. So we're not. Yeah, and you know, th- three times a day is just a, an arbitrary. Example. Yeah, some for number. Some people, yeah, two for some people, it's four, but but whatever number makes sense. Um, exactly. And, and you know, while we're on this topic, another really powerful lesson that came out of the book is to remove the object of distraction from your line of sight. Hmm. Like you said, even if I'm not constantly responding to emails, if I see them coming in, or if I see the little red light on my phone beeping. It takes a lot of energy and willpower just to resist checking the thing. Yeah. So there's all kinds of research that shows that the best way to really get in the zone and do good, deep, growth-promoting work is to remove those distractions from your from your literal visual sight. And I, I've uh, I think it was Benjamin Hardy I was talking to, who's a writer, and he he said he when he writes he even turns his internet off. He turns everything off, puts pretty much everything on airplane mode, so that that so that those lights aren't beeping and coming in. Yeah, you know, it's 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 Ben 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 has company amongst a lot of uh, a lot of colleagues and writers. So when I was writing this book, I actually had a two hundred ten dollar computer that that I'd never gotten internet card installed on mm. uh, for the manuscript. So when I could go write, I was just writing. That's a great idea, and it's cheaper. <laughs> and you don't, yeah, exactly. and, and you're stuck. You you all you can do with that one is write. Um, yep. Is it because I guess too you might want to help us blow up this multitasking idea because we a lot of us feel like we're really good multitaskers. Is that is the, is there such a thing? So there is such a thing. It's one percent of the population. Um, so the way that odds work, that's probably not you because that's <laughs> just how statistics work. Yeah. Um, and to show that that's probably not you, some researchers at Stanford recruited uh, individuals for a study. And the, the key selection criteria was that these people self-identified as great multitaskers. Hmm. So these were people who firmly believed that they have mastered multitasking um, and described it as a real core skill that they have. And then the researchers put them in MRI machines that allowed the researchers to look at their brain activity. And what they found is that even these people that said that they're great multitaskers, when they were quote-unquote multitasking, they were actually at a millisecond level switching between two tasks. And as a result, the quantity and the quality of their work suffered. So they had them in a single-tasking situation, a multitasking situation. They looked at brain activity, and they looked at work output. And what they found is, again, brain activity switching. So you're kind of like that runner again, constantly yeah. checking alerts. And the quantity and the quality of their work suffered. Um, so again, you know, I, I need to be honest to the science. They did identify that 1% of the population can multitask effectively. Um, but even amongst people that think that they can, they, they tend not to be able to. Yeah. 80% of the population thinks they can, but only 1% of actual self, self-selected multitaskers could. Um, that's interesting. Exactly. That is fascinating. And other than, so really what we're doing is we're just monotasking at a very rapid rate. And do it in doing so, and in doing so, you actually just decrease your success, your effectiveness. Right, because you have all these, you have all these, uh, these switching costs per se. It's right? So like true. Like if you're constantly switching between tasks, it takes some time and in mental energy to switch between doing two things. Wow, you know, again, another myth that we've got to blow up, that we've got to, we've got to get out of our heads. 
Brad, um, the book's a wonderful thing. Talk about what's the one thing we can do. I always like to ask at the end of the interview, what's the one thing that each and every one of us could do today that would have a dramatic impact on our ability to get peak performance? So I'm going to come back to a, a core. It's a great question. Thank you. I'm going to come back to a core theme that, that we discussed. And I think the one thing that listeners can do today is bring some awareness to your life, identify an area in which you want to improve, grow, get better, and just ask yourself, what's the next logical step? What's a just manageable challenge that'll make me ever so slightly uncomfortable, but I think I can succeed, but I know I'm really going to have to put my all into it and set up a plan to take on that challenge. And then attack that plan. Uh, Brad, we appreciate your great stuff. Brad Stolberg's his name. The book is Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with the New Science of Success. Uh, and really become aware and then ask yourself, identify your goal and ask yourself, what's the one thing? You already know you should be doing it. What's the one logical thing that you should be doing? And then get on it. Get on it. This isn't brain surgery. It's just your performance creating a better life for you, for everyone around you. And that is the goal of the Matt Townsend Show, is to help you be the good in the world. We will continue the journey in just a few minutes. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. You know, one of the goals of, I think, anybody that is about to uh, maybe rob a bank, steal something, ought to be to make sure you either have a good disguise so no one can know who you are or a good getaway, right? So uh, we always talk about how the getaways don't always turn out the way people anticipate. But apparently this uh, our, our next uh, story, the guy didn't think it through very well. Well, or did he? Because he, uh, it's a burglar that tries to disguise himself as the son. Yeah. The son, not like the child. That would (laughs) seems like it would be difficult to pull off. So there's this 51-year-old who's accused of stealing a towel, then trying to disguise himself as the son, as you said. (laughs) Uh, And this is in northwest Florida. Drakenberg, his name is Eric Drakenberg. uh, He allegedly entered a private home in Walton County, Florida, and proceeded to steal a towel and uh, the, uh, let's see, did an unlawfully deprive the owner of the use of the towel. Hmm. When deputies were investigating the incident, Drakenberg was disguising himself as the son with the intent to obstruct the due execution of law. The report (laughs) does not specify how Drakenberg attempted to pull off such a deception. Additionally, it is unclear whether or not the man was trying to pass as the actual son or as a copy of a publication. Such as the, the Sun, Sun Magazine, yeah, the Sun, which might be referred to as the Sun. When uh, when asked about these two matters, a spokeswoman for the Walton County Sheriff's Office told the Huffington Post that it looks like the Sun is the name he gave for himself to the deputy. So, he's uh, what's your to, name? I'm the Sun, the Sun Sentinel. The whole publication, yeah, but better the Sun than the Moon. That's true. I know mean, he was in a towel. Yeah, yeah, better the Sun than the Moon. Wow, what people will do. And by the way, weird story out of Florida. Yeah. Of all places. Maybe he should have disguised himself as like Bob Woodward or Bernstein. Yeah. You know? He could have been anybody. He could have. A staff member at the paper, but maybe not the paper itself. Not the paper itself. What are you? I'm a newspaper. Anyway, there's many ways to hide, folks. Uh, Sometimes it might be better to just not uh, commit the crime in the first place. Anyway, this is the Matt Townsend Show helping you along this crazy journey of life. We'll continue the journey next hour. 
you're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.